Squad, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoilers special podcasts. This one is dedicated to the 20th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, the 20th. In James Bond terms, we're a die another day by now. But we're not a die another day, we are at Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is a sequel, of course, to the 2015 movie Ant-Man and not the Wasp. <laughs> Joining me... Over the next couple of hours, including, of course, the Sporter Special interviews to talk about the film in minute detail. Do you get that? Minute because it's small. Oh, it's small. Are uh, two of our biggest talents, Helen O'Hara. Hello. And James Dyer. Hi. How are you both? Fine, good. Yeah, super good. Thank yeah. you. Great. Excellent. Yeah. Solid. Good. you excited about talking about this movie? James, I know you are. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am thrilled. Uh, yes, good, good, good. Well, save it. Save your enthusiasm for for later on, because uh, this is a spoiler special, so we're going to get right into it, straight from the off. Third act revelations. I was going to say major deaths, but there are no major deaths in this film. Um, um, all the plot or developments. Are or are there? No, they're not. And all... What? Well, in, the, in the credits. And those deaths? Yeah. I don't know. All the stuff, all the major revelations, third act stuff and all. We get into it right from the off. But first, we're going to hear from the director of the film, Peyton Reed, and the producer of the film, Stephen Broussard, who has been with Marvel Studios from the very beginning. So the first voice you're going to hear is me talking to director Peyton Reed. And as ever, this is a spoiler special. So if you have not seen Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, which of course came out in the States three or four months ago, so you probably have seen it if you're listening to this in the States. But if you haven't seen it, then highly to your nearest cinema. Or if you're in the States, just wander down to Blockbuster and pick up a copy. <laughs> uh, come back and then listen to that. So here we go. Peyton Reed, the director of Ant-Man and the Wasp, talking to me. Enjoy. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Ant-Man and the Wasp Spoiler Special Podcast by the film's director, Peyton Reed. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. We're talking a bit quickly because we've got 30 minutes to get through everything. I have my coffee. Okay, good, good, good. Let's, let's see how it goes. Uh, I want to start off with the post-credits thing that everybody is talking about. And yes. playing the drums. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Was, was that, you know... Yeah, we, you know, listen, I, uh, I'm i a drummer. I've been a drummer for many, many years. And when we were first formulating things that Scott Lang could be doing to sort of ride out the rest of his house arrest, mm -hmm. it's like, well, let's get him some synth drums in there. It seems like a Scott Lang thing to do. And, uh, you know, we, of course, have the plot device where... Uh, Hank Pym has programmed an, an ant to replicate Scott's actions while in house arrest. So uh, we like the idea that even after the events of Infinity War, when um, the world is in chaos, yeah. that maybe this uh, this ant that's been programmed to do all of Scott's activities maybe kind of took a liking to it. And just he's still <laughs> hanging out there. He survived and he's just uh, still playing the drums. It felt like a very Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, way to deal with yeah. Infinity War. It's, it's really tragic in a way because Hank's not around at the moment to tell the ant to cease and desist. Yeah. So the ant is just going around replicating Scott's daily routine forever and ever and ever. Well, it's either he's replicating the thing or he's developed his own affinity for, you know, <laughs> maybe it is a choice. I mean, you know, he, uh, who knows? That's a mystery. <laughs> Were you worried that the fact that that shot had been fairly prominent in the trailers might be, and I want you to take this, this pun into consideration, an anticlimax? 
Very nice. And Congratulations like for that, that Chris. Yeah, that's really good. No, it's it's weird. I've gotten to a point, I think, in my career where, you know, you see various uh, TV spots and trailers cut. It's like, oh, don't, don't spoil that. And out of context, these shots and these these moments mean very different things. Yeah. So I didn't think for a second that anybody was going to say, like, oh, clearly that's going to be the second in-credit uh, tag on uh, on the movie. Um, <laughs> and it was such a just bizarro image. I think people were like, okay, what, what kind of movie is this? So the, the one that everyone is talking about uh, – you know, everyone's obviously talking about the other one, but they're really talking about this one. Yes. It's been out in the States for a couple of weeks. I had to mute Ant-Man and the Wasp on Twitter because I didn't want to have people spoil the ending for I me. I think it's a smart move. I mean, it really is a thing because this is a staggered release. You know, how do you, in the year 2018, deal with that? Because you know, as a moviegoer, I hate things to be spoiled. You really want to go into any movie knowing as little as possible. So there's some element of yeah. surprise, but that's the smart thing to do. It's a very smart thing to tell people to do who've had to wait for so long to see it. But um, I'm glad you had the fortitude to do it. <laughs> I did it. I went in. I was unspoiled. Uh, someone sent me a spoiler via DM for this show. And I skimmed it and I went, spoiler, and I had to stop. I had to oh. stop. All I saw was the word Thanos. So that's that's it. Anyway, so yep, the yep. Uh, so the end of the the end of the movie, the ferry, the post credits thing, the first post credits thing, sees Scott stranded in the quantum realm after uh, his three colleagues are dusted by Thanos. Yes. Uh, where did that come from? And was there any discussion about ending the movie proper with that? There was a lot of discussion in general <clears throat> about how our movie was going to deal with the events uh, at the end of Infinity War. Of course, we always knew we were coming after it. We knew that we knew how it ended. There were points early on where we said, well, no, we're just going to be standalone and let's sort of like toward the end of the movie drop some little hint about where we fit into the timeline. There was discussion as we were writing about, do we plant little Easter eggs on monitors behind our action, seeing stuff going on in the other parts of the world as this mm-hmm. was happening? And that felt boring. And we'd seen this in movies before. It didn't feel very narratively exciting. So when we landed on this structure, what we liked was tying up our movie in a very neat bow. There's a lot of resolution, this so-called, what we were calling internally the parade of resolutions, but where it's, a, it's an intentionally sort of very, very happy, you know, endings. Yeah. Scott's out on house arrest. He's reunited with Cassie. Uh, the guy's company, Xcon is is uh, they landed the big deal, Carapetian, and uh, the company's going to survive. Of course, Hank and Janet are reunited. Mm-hmm. All playing to the Partridge family. Come on, get happy. Like a very neat resolution and then a really fun, colorful credit sequence. And then, oh, where are they now? What, what's happening in this tag? They're, they're, they're doing some kind of quantum experiment. There's Luis's van throwing all these things at the audience immediately to catch them off guard. Janet's in street clothes and there's he's in the Ant-Man suit and Hope's handing him something. What, what are they doing? They're something about ghost. Uh, and then, bam, just punching the audience in, in the gut with it. It felt like a very uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp way to deal with this gigantic, uh, dramatic uh, happening at the end of Infinity War. Uh, where did that come from? Because obviously, you know, you're not making this film in a bubble. You say, you, yeah. you know, you, you can talk about making standalone films, but obviously this is the 20th film in the MCU. Yeah. Something big is on the on the horizon as well. Yeah. So how much of that is, is come, comes from you and the writing team? And how much of it is handed down by the, the Well, it felt, I mean, at a certain point, it felt like a disservice to kind of not deal with it at all. We we knew we in the structure we landed on, we really liked people are going to come into this movie just looking for clues. And we don't give them any for a very, very long time, obviously. And they, you know, then they get caught up in the narrative of this film. But I remember there was discussion about it. We kept kicking the decision down the street for the longest time about how we were going to deal with it. And then um, our writers and Marcus and McFeely mm-hmm. got together and we're talking about what's the what's our movie's version of dealing with it. I think Marcus and McFeely wrote an initial draft with 
you know, Luis's van and, and, our, and what hadn't been determined was who all was going to be in the scene. Earlier, there was a larger version where maybe Bill Foster and Ava Starr were also going to be there. But it got to the point, and maybe Luis, but then it got to the point of the sort of 50% rule of, you know, what, what Thanos is doing. You couldn't have everybody blink away. It was going to be too uh, convenient. So uh, then our writers, uh, I think it was Chris McKenna and Eric Summers did a pass. And we, you know, it was something that we looked at over and over again and just how we were going to construct it. And, you know, in a very limited amount of time, what we were going to throw at the audience. Uh, and when we when we landed on the structure, it felt really, really right. So it was a very much a joint effort. Um, I shot it, of course, but we just in terms of how we figured out mm. how it was going to play out, because, mm. again, it's such a giant dramatic swing that you had to be careful where you placed it in the movie. We knew we didn't want the movie proper to end with that. Because it was just too, I mean, it's still a downer any way you slice it. But we didn't want it to be in the body. And to me, there is a, a difference there. Um, just a couple of last questions about that. Uh, in terms of the time frame, the timeline of this movie, the, the movie itself, the main movie, how, how far ahead of the events of Infinity War would you say that is? A couple of weeks? A couple of days? What, yeah, we're deliberately, we I mean, the whole movie really takes place over a three-day period, his last three days of, of house arrest. Um, in terms of how, uh, how long before... The Thanos event, uh, those three days were, it's undetermined. I mean, we have to assume that Hank and Janet spent a little time in their uh, seaside house, wherever, on this remote island and came back and got to work on this uh, quantum experiment. So, you know, it, it is undetermined, but it's not mm. that long a period of time because yeah. um, we really do play our characters. They are sort of in their bubble doing their thing and and really unaware of all the events that are happening. Because obviously Infinity War, and there's a, there's a line about Scott is under house arrest, so yes. he can't take part in the massive that's right. Thanos beating jamboree that's, that's going on. And of course, by the, uh, the end, the end tag, he's no longer on house arrest, so they could have just, they could have, they could have gone to gut him. Yeah. You know, he could, you know, he, well, but then he might have been dusted. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> listen, maybe they just uh, didn't think he was up to the task. We, you know, it's still, it's still to be determined what the Avengers actually think of Scott Lang. And again, I like the idea at the beginning of this movie that he's, he's not Ant-Man. And it's kind yeah. of wrestling with the idea of, like, is there space in my life to be Ant-Man? I know I like it, but um, it's every time he's put on that suit, it's brought him a lot of trouble. Yeah, but he's hidden the suit away for a reason. Yes. Because he's, he's addicted to it, the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can see in the, as he's taking Cassie through this cardboard maze at the beginning, you know, like to show her, like, this is what it would be like to shrink. You know, we can't do it. Obviously, it would, I'd be a terrible parent, but you can tell he misses it. <laughs> the, the house arrest thing. Again, was that something that you inherited in a way as a result of the offensive civil no. war, or was that something that you no? Made? The line, the line in Infinity War actually really comes from our movie. It's, okay. it's um, we like the idea. We had to deal with the events of Civil War, mm -hmm. uh, and when I first saw an early cut of Civil War, that was what really. Uh, what dawned on me was like, oh, my God, Hank Pym is going to be pissed off at Scott Lang and and Hope Van Dyne is going to feel so betrayed. It gave us uh, a really, really organic jumping off point because that's the tricky thing. I've never done a sequel before. Mm. And to me, you know, that sort of where do you decide sort of when the sequence of events in the second movie are going to start? And I, I like that it starts, you know, with a lot of water under the bridge and the audience has to play a little catch up as to what happened. But it really suggested a couple of things. It suggested technically, what if he's on house arrest? He's not Ant-Man. And uh, as a result of him violating the Sokovia Accords, they're on to Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne now, and they've had to go underground. Mm -hmm. And these characters are estranged. 
in a, in a movie dramatically that's about this partnership, that seemed like a great way to begin the movie and, and, and kind of unexpected. It was tricky because it did kind of require people to have knowledge of the events of Civil War. Mm-hmm. But I also figured, well, way more people saw Civil War than saw the first Ant-Man. So, I mean, in regards <laughs> to that, I think we're OK. But like I really did. I, I it kind of was a gift to us in terms of how we uh, how we dealt with that. But the idea of house arrest just seemed it seemed fun. It seemed like this gives Scott Lang. Uh, something to do and a very specific thing at the beginning of the movie. And unlike a lot of the other MCU heroes, I think that's part of Scott Lang's big struggle is really this work-life balance. Like, is there room in his life to be a hero? Mm. And and you're right. He's not Ant-Man at the beginning of the movie. The events of the movie mean that he has to don the suit again. But uh, he could go his life without donning that suit again. If Yeah, he may have regrets. And also, I think, you know, there is a sort of non-confrontational part of Scott Lang. You know, we obviously state early on in the movie that, you know, while Hank Pym hates his guts and, you know, he's done something, we know what he's done to piss them off. But um there's not much – Scott doesn't sound like he's really attempted to repair that relationship. He really only calls Hank you know, after he has this, this vision. And that was an interesting thing to me. It's like he's, he's – it's very hard to have a passive hero in the MCU. Yeah. And you probably don't want to. But I think Scott Lang in this movie is the closest because you know, when we were talking about staying in the crime genre and sort of constructing a, a sort of Elmore Leonard-esque vibe to the thing, we talked about all the sort of Elmore Leonard-esque uh, offshoots. Even things like Midnight Run, which, of course, is not Elmore Leonard, but like Mm. um, and things like The Big Lebowski, Mm. you know, which is kind of why Scott Lang is wearing a bathrobe in the beginning (laughs) of the movie. Um, But the idea that that's a very passive hero who's sucked into these larger than life events, but that there's a little a little Lebowski in Scott Lang. Oh, he has his stakes. Obviously, he wants to avoid prison and uh, he's doing everything for his daughter. But huge personal stakes. yeah. Yeah. But the emotional drive of the story comes from Hope and from Hank. Yeah. Uh, And. That obviously speaks to the title itself, um, and the Wasp. You're giving them both equal status, and you talk about the about uh, engineering hope as the driver of the story emotionally as well. Yeah, I mean, when we were um, talking about the overriding structure, uh, there's a prologue in the movie, obviously, and we witness, you know, the the last time seven year old Hope sees her mm-hmm. mother alive, and we always knew this movie was going to be about the journey to attempt to rescue Janet Van Dyne, and we wanted to make it. You know, uh, we know from the first movie why it's Hank Pym's passion, but we really wanted to make this about it's Hope's journey emotionally more than anything, this this loss. Uh, and we like the idea that, you know, she's a fully formed hero now. She's finally got the suit. And who would be the logical role model for her in her life? It would be her mother, who hasn't been around for 30 years. So in addition to just the chance to be reunited with your mom after 30 years, I think there are lots of questions she has about what is it to be a hero? And, and, you know, this is the one person who could really answer those questions for her. What's mm. it like to be a hero? Maybe even what's it like to be um, a woman in, in this sort of man's club of, of being a hero? We like that idea just as a sort of subtext. But it was important that Hope's story be the emotional underpinning of the movie. And yet Hank is the one who ultimately takes a journey into the quantum realm. Yeah. And that was something that we really, you know, it was always the plan in the movie. It's uh, Hope's going down. Hope is going down to get her mom. Uh, She is trained. She's ready to go. She's putting on the suit. She's getting in the pod and she's going down. And then the circumstances of the story arise with Ghost that uh, the plan has to change. And she and Scott have to stay up as a team and prevent Ghost from getting it. And Hank goes down. And it felt felt good. And it's very um, very telling in that scene in the van when they're revising the plan that Hank asked permission of Hope 
to go down. Mm. He doesn't say, I'm going down. He's, he says, he mm. asks her. Yes. And because that's, that's always been the thing. And we really, um, it was a very delicate scene to construct because it couldn't be like, listen here, little girl, I'm doing this, whatever. He really was, <laughs> you know, he asked permission. It's her, it's her mission. In terms of expectations for this movie, I think we were all expecting it to venture the quantum realm. And we were all expecting to see Janet at some point, even before you cast Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Uh, but I was perhaps surprised by how little time we spent comparatively in the quantum realm. Yeah. Was there a version of the script where we spent more time in there? Was it ever a bigger part? Early on, there were very different iterations of how much time we might spend down there, who might be going down. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I'm talking very, very early on, like pre-script <laughs> when we were just like mapping out what the story could be. Yeah. You know, I think early on there was even an iteration of like, what if it's like um, adventures in babysitting, but in the quantum realm and it's Cassie gets lost in the quantum realm and mm-hmm. Scott and Luis have to go find her. I mean, we had a lot of crazy ideas for what it could be. <laughs> Ultimately, we landed on the structure where we really keep the idea of Janet alive throughout the movie. And that's how I think why the whole... Uh, Scott Lang channeling Janet Van Dyne is such a crucial scene, yes. you know, it, it, that it is a reunion without being an actual proper reunion, but it is an emotional reunion between them. But really it was when we landed on sort of the general structure, we knew we'd be cross-cutting between this, you know, relatively gritty, uh, broad daylight chase through San Francisco and Hank's uh, descending into the quantum realm. We wanted to maintain a little bit of mystery about Janet and what has transpired in the 30 years since he's She's been down there. And also the idea that um, she talks about having evolved while she's down there. Yes. We only see a couple of examples in it. There's a little bit more Janet uh, on the Blu-ray and DVD release. There'll be one okay. deleted scene okay. with Hank and Janet down there, <clears throat> which we just couldn't find a place for in the movie. A big part of it, too, is I had a mandate on both the first Ant-Man and this one that they be under two hours. And to me, it's because it is, it's a comedy and an action film. And I, I want these movies to be as lean and mean as possible. Yeah. So it was really sort of taking the quantum realm and condensing it somewhat and definitely leaving the door open for much more discovery. There is a shot as Hank and Janet are leaving the quantum realm as their pod is going up and the camera pans left to right and goes up there. And you can see sort of in the distance for the sharp eyed viewer, a little evidence that there may be more going on in the quantum realm than we present in this movie. Interesting. I, I, I need to see it again now. Yeah, come on. You've just sold Number three. Test. Well done. <laughs> but it, it is interesting. I spoke to Scott Derrickson whenever he was doing Doctor Strange for the same spoiler podcast. And he said that he had felt, and I think this came from test screening audiences as well, that there was a finite amount of time you could spend on that crazy strange trip that Doctor Strange takes through the different yeah. dimensions. And the quantum realm is such a trippy place to be. Yeah, well, he's right. It's interesting because you have to... Um, I think one, for me, one of the strengths of the Ant-Man movies is that they are grounded. I mean, again, it's, it's not outer space or Asgard. It's, it's the real world, and we you know, do very weird things within that context. But it is interesting in terms of something that's so psychedelic um, in the design of the quantum realm, uh, giving it a certain amount of terrestrial cues in terms of the visuals, but also mm-hmm. making it weird and trippy. But there is a limited viewer uh, sort of tolerance for how much time – And also the thing that occurred to us early on, if you were going to perhaps send Scott and Hope down there at some point and the shrinking and growing, all bets are off. Like shrinking and growing is sort of meaningless in the quantum realm. Their power set in some weird way is is rendered neutralized. He's just a guy in the suit. He has blasters. And and size kind of becomes this whole other thing. So um, it was all those elements. But I think, yeah, I agree with Scott in that, that there is a real – particularly – 
when you're doing something that's, you know, we knew what we needed in terms of the emotional quotient of the quantum realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to throw all these sort of um, really bizarro science fiction concepts at an audience that late in the movie, too, is another thing. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a very tricky structure. But it's interesting you said that and that Scott – I'd never heard Scott say that, but it's absolutely true because you're – and I think maybe more so in Ant Man and the Wasp than Doctor Strange, because Strange is really about that. But you know, we're throwing some really like hard science fiction concepts way late in our structure of our movie. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's tricky. Hank appears to go through the mirror dimension at one point from Doctor Strange. Yeah, he goes. What he goes through is really that sort of kaleidoscopic thing that Scott Lang went through in the first movie. Mm-hmm. We we trace Scott's journey in the first movie through the different subatomic levels. And in that movie, he ends in this uh, the place we were calling the void. And in the first movie, the void wanted to feel like, okay, this is a place you don't come back from. Scott's not coming back until he figures out a way to come back. So it was important in this movie to create an internal logic where mm. Hank has got to build a pod and get down to that level and then basically turn on the nitrous and go even deeper and penetrate that sort of membrane into the further uh, quantum realm. Mm. So he goes through that sort of kaleidoscopic crystalline level that that Scott hit that was really trippy in the first movie. Again, you said you wanted to leave some mystery uh, regarding Janet. There's there's lots of talk throughout the film about how 30 years in the quantum realm will affect the mind and play with the mind. And I think, again, there was a certain expectation that she might be corrupted in some way, that this might not be the person who went in. There may even be a hint of villainy there. There's not in this movie, but can you can you talk about it? Did that ever play out at any point? There were discussions, again, very, very early on about that exact question. Mm. How has she been affected by 30 years down there? And the answer when you're in that formulation stage of the story is, well, this can be anything you want it to be. It's really, really infinite. In this story, we sort of decided to keep the mystery because, you know, we we want audiences guessing. I mean, I'm a big I, – I love the rabid, passionate fandom because I came from that world as a kid, whether, you know, I was talking recently about – my sort of childhood fan club experiences Mm. in a larger conversation about fandom in general. But like I was in the land of the lost fan club and planet of the (laughs) apes and $6 million man. And of course, star Wars when it came time. But, um, I like that. There's a certain amount of speculation. I remember getting the empire strikes back soundtrack because the album came out two weeks before the movie Uh in 1980. And so just looking at these photos that they have in the thing and just you haven't seen the movie yet, but you're just staring at these still photos and imagining what it can be. And that part of the process is exciting to me. And as, and with regards to Janet, to me, it is like let let people run wild with kind of what they think it's going to be. That's really part of the fun. OK, OK. That's uh, interesting. We to- have we have choices and we have decisions <laughs> if we are blessed uh, to be able to make a, a third movie. So uh, there is a plan in place. Nicely avoided, sir. Nicely avoided. Uh, Yes. I will ask a couple of specific things about Janet. 30 years, what what has she been eating? How has she been surviving? What's... Uh, she has a very balanced breakfast uh, of quantum Quispies. Is her cereal of choice uh, with uh, a little bit of? Uh, <laughs> she gets from the quant- quantum target, or you know, yeah, 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 a little roast tardigrade. Uh, you know, there is again when you see this uh, when you see this uh, little shot at the end. There's uh-huh. a suggestion that okay, per the comics, per the microverse and Marvel, that you know mm-hmm. there are civilizations down there, which explains also where she got the sword and the cow. Yeah, there's different. And there in the deleted scene that you'll see on the disc, mm-hmm. there is um, a, another little piece of technology that is uh, used in that scene mm-hmm. that'll give you glimpses. You know, it, it was 
important for us to see these little glimpses in what she's wearing mm-hmm. uh, and in the scene that was deleted, sort of a device that she's using to suggest mm-hmm. that there is actual civilization or civilizations down there, <laughs> an infinite amount, okay. kind of how she might have not only survived, but of course thrived down there. She mentioned at the very, very end of the tag, a time vortex. She does. Might that be a hint as to how Scott gets out of his predicament? She mentions tardigrade fields. Mm-hmm. She mentions time vortexes, you know, as these sort of um, uh, warnings to Scott about what not to get involved in. And uh, per your question, these things might prove valuable. <laughs> Um, they're not just randomly spouted off in the moment of anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, again, part of the fun of that thing was putting detail in there and throwing it out for the audience to guess which ones might be pertinent yes. and which ones might not. Yes. And the ones that seem pertinent might not be, and the ones that seem frivolous might be very, very pertinent. Who knows? Okay. It has happy endings, and it also has doesn't have a body count. Uh, all the bad guys either get arrested at the end or they're on the run at the yeah. end. Or they're not really bad guys. Yeah. That was clearly a deliberate part, a choice in your part. Yeah, they're really – we refer to them as antagonists. I mean, you have Ava, you have Ghost, who's really the chief antagonist, um, and that her origin and her agenda have a very um, – there's a very specific relation to our hero. She blames Hank Pym, and Hank Pym was sort of indirectly involved with you know this quantum explosion that created her – her quantum affliction. Um, but you also have Sonny Birch, Walton Goggins, who is kind of more of an Elmore Leonard-esque street level guy who is a certain level of criminal who aspires to, you know, uh, be a criminal on a higher level and rub shoulders with superheroes. So it was really the idea of taking stuff like Midnight Run or After Hours or something where there's a very simple goal that the protagonists have and just throwing all these obstacles and, um, double crossing and, you know, FBI agents and, uh, other people who wanted the technology and just creating this sort of comedic kind of adventure. So in terms of like the violence or the body count, it really felt, you know, as we were developing the thing, we were just, there were discussions about how brutal we want ghosts to be Mm. because there is a certain amount of redemption that we achieve with her at the end of the movie. Mm. And as we sort of did the various drafts of the screenplay, it became more and more organic. That's like, well, you know, anytime we tried to introduce violence or hyper violence into the thing, it just felt like, well, this feels, uh, it doesn't feel like our movie so much. Mm. And then it kind of became this challenge of like, let's, I want to create a movie here where it's, you know, there's less sort of guns and violence. I mean, even with the gun stuff, it's, you know, they're just shooting at a chandelier trying to shoot wasp, which is of course, as we know, as fans of wasp is a pretty, uh, uh, not a very, Effective way to go after. You'd have to be a hell of a shot. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to. You'd have to be Darren Cross. (laughs) You'd have to be yeah, (laughs) the man who could take out an ant from a hundred (laughs) feet. Exactly. Um, But that's very interesting because obviously there's the moment where uh, Ava threatens, just posits the idea of going after Cassie, and and Bill immediately goes no. Yeah. And in another movie, another iteration of this, I imagine both would have been full blown evil and gone. Yeah. Yeah, and also it was, you know, <clears throat> we liked introducing the idea like, oh, wait for a second. Wait, they're going to go after Cassie again? Didn't they do that in the first movie? And <laughs> But also introducing Bill Foster, who, in, you know, when I was reading comics as a kid, I loved Bill Foster. And there was a very short-lived uh, comic in the 70s, Black Goliath, you know, where that was Bill Foster, you know, and he, he, uh, he was sort of this um, – I think it ran for only – I don't know, man, eight issues or something. Okay, yeah. But even before that, he was a character in The Avengers, a colleague of Hank Pym's. But I love the idea of, in this movie, introducing a foil for Hank Pym, someone from his past who did a couple of things. 
was further representation of the fact that Hank Pym does not play well with other people. Yes. But also constructing these scenes where uh, the, there are these two alpha males, right, who represent this older era of heroes and, and the sort of the era of S.H.I.E.L.D., and each guy thinks he's is convinced he's the smartest guy in the room, but that Bill Foster in the comics is a hero. So creating this guy who kind of you know, had a very altruistic, you know, he wanted to save Ava when mm-hmm. she was younger and S.H.I.E.L.D. took her and weaponized her, but he hasn't given up on her. And he, in some ways, has the most noble agenda in the movie. He's, you know, she sort of dragged him down this darker path, uh, but he's a very conflicted hero. And that, that seems like something interesting to to sort of, you know present in this movie. We've got about two minutes left, so I'm going to go quick fire uh, with yep. you. Uh, at any point, did, did Bill Foster ever Goliath up in this in, in this movie? We had a draft when uh, Ava is recounting her backstory, and then there was a version where Bill was recounting a backstory, and we saw at one point we were going to have one brief flashback with young Hank Pym uh, and young Bill Foster where he reaches his 21 feet and trying the thing, and it just felt, <laughs> it was too, narratively, it just was too much of a left turn. As much as we felt like it might get a big cheer from a, a small percentage of Marvel Comics fans, it just, it was too, too far a reach. But okay. who knows in okay. the future? Uh, where did the idea of uh, playing with sizes come from? And clearly you've, you've boxed off the science in a way uh, in, in that Hank has developed the pin particles enough so you can get into a car and your size will change if you're in that field. I'm guessing exactly. that's, that's yeah, what's yeah, happening. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of that, that hilarious set piece where Scott is running down the steps, yeah. tiny Scott, yeah. where, where did that idea come from of, of changing his size and he can't quite control it? He has performance issues, which yes. a, a man of a certain age might identify with. <laughs> exactly. No, it came, from, uh, it came from the idea that you know we did so much shrinking in the first movie. Um, and of course, there was a lot of giant man, uh, relatively speaking, in Civil War. And how could we do something that was, was different in this movie? And we said, let's Apply PIM particle technology not only to people but to vehicles and buildings. Let's go nuts with that. But then also with Scott, it occurred to us, well, since the first movie, Hank and Hope have really been obsessed with building this quantum tunnel, and that is their mission. So maybe the Ant-Man technology has kind of been put on the back burner. And so we see that Hank Pym has been developing a new Ant-Man suit, but currently there's not really anyone to wear it. And we like the idea of, you know, when he first puts on the suit, Hank saying, you know, it's still a work in progress and having fun with this malfunctioning suit. It seemed like a really fun comedic conceit for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. but it also gave us a lot of different visuals and things to play with. And then in the third act, it presents, you know, uh, you know, more of a dramatic challenge that he's got this goal and it's being mm. foiled by this suit. Well, the funniest bits in the movie, Luis's montage, his, yes. uh, which is uh, one of the few direct nods, I would say, to the first film in terms of stylistic callbacks. Yeah. Uh, were you ever resistant to doing that? <clears throat> it was one of the things people really loved about the first movie. We were resistant because we, we sat around in, when we were writing and saying, like, we can't just do this as like, hey, you loved it in the first movie, we're doing it again. It had to have a reason for being in this movie if we were going to do it. And when the writers hit on Truth Serum and the idea that um, Sonny Birch was going to come in and tie up Luis and demand to know where Scott Lang was and that Luis misinterprets the question or maybe deliberately is is trying to, you know, resist the truth serum by uh, by thinking he meant where Scott, emotionally speaking, um, is struck us as really uh, not only funny, but it could also do some work for us in terms of filling in the gaps about what happened between Scott and Hope romantically, you know, between yep. the first movie, yep. seeing the moment, you know, in prison and just filling in some backstory in a non-sweaty way. And also that there <laughs> appears to be a little bit of amphetamine in the truth serum because Luis is so amped up in telling the story. Um, and it also felt very much like 
really leaning into this Elmore Leonard-esque thing or this crime thing. There are two sequences in this movie where people are tied to chairs, which is insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's insane enough that there's one scene where heroes are tied to chairs and, and given information. It's nuts. And we have two of them. And it's by design. We just decided, like, let's just let's do this. Let's take this conceit that we've seen a million times. I mean, that's a Scooby-Doo conceit <laughs> and, and do it twice. So that, that made us laugh. It also allows you to have the, the main cast uh, take part in the lip, yeah. Louis lip sync fun. Yeah. And you get to poke fun at Hope's uh, haircut from the first film. Absolutely. It did all of those things. <clears throat> it answered the questions. That, and yeah. And the Hope haircut thing was definitely like, let's have Evangeline. I want to see Evangeline lip sync to Michael Pena and address the severe haircut. There was such a a, a point of controversy in the first <laughs> movie. It, it struck us as funny. I, I can't leave without asking about uh, the uh, Kurt's reaction to Ghost appearing and the, the Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga. Yeah, the Baba Yaga thing, that was Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, the writers who, who came up. Uh, Baba Yaga is a very real thing. Yes. Um, and referencing Baba Yaga, that of course, that would be Kurt's interpretation of hearing about Ghost. And also for the eagle-eyed viewer, there are a couple of shots in Hank Pym's laboratory uh, behind a computer station, he has an old sort of 60s or 70s era um, stereo console. Yeah. And the album that is on there, the back cover of the album is Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, The Hut of Baba Yaga. <laughs> so that means one of two things. Either Hank Pym knew that Baba Yaga was going to be coming around or he's a huge prog rock fan. And either way, we win, right? <laughs> <laughs> it says more about Hank Pym than... Than I think you might expect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Peyton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, indeed. thank you. Thank you. And that was Peyton Reed. Now let's hear from the producer, Stephen Broussard, also talking to me. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Ant Man and the Wasp spoiler special podcast by the producer of the film, Stephen Broussard. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, sir? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Can I just get that one thing out of the way? First of all, your name is referenced in uh, Civil War. Is that correct? It you is are Dr. Broussard. <laughs> I'm Dr. Broussard as played by Joe Russo, I believe. Yeah, Gozi yeah. Igbo. Yeah. <laughs> Get it right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I'm not sure how that came. I'm from Louisiana where, where Broussard is a very common surname. It's uh-huh. like Smith. But I, if, you're not, if, if, you're, if you're not from Louisiana, I guess it sounds sort of exotic and European. Uh-huh. So when they were uh, searching for a name of a, of a, of a doctor, it was probably uh, – Chris, Chris Marcus and Steve McFeely that suggested it, and uh, it was very flattering. <laughs> and you weren't going to go, no, guys, no, that's I, I couldn't possibly let you do that. It was in the can. I didn't even have the opportunity to, but <laughs> but no, it's pretty cool to have uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. dramatically deliver a line to camera that, that was like, <laughs> then who's Broussard or whatever the line was. Is, uh, uh, you will live in infamy forever. Fantastic. So, uh, so Broussard is a bit like Smith down in Louisiana. Very common, yes. Okay, yeah. which leads me neatly on the lovely. Thanks for providing me with a nice segue because the Smiths play a big part in this film, unexpectedly. Yes. <laughs> where, where did that come from? How did I, that come about? It was just you know the idea of uh, if you're going to do this truth serum uh, uh, conceit as a way to revisit the, the tip montages as, as they were known in Ant Man One. Uh, what are these weird non sequiturs you could have in um, in in the telling of his story, and so the idea that some memory would be triggered was kind of funny. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I think that was our writers, uh, Chris and Eric, who actually brought that to the table. And 
Mr. Morrissey, I believe, had to approve. Certainly, oh, certainly really? his likeness, and certainly the uh, the use of his music, uh-huh. which is an image that I'm tickled by. The notion of uh, <laughs> of this being brought to him, and and also tickled that he said yes, being a longtime Smiths and Morrissey fan. And as a matter of fact, when we were shooting in San Francisco, I went to see him for the first time. He played it at the Masonic Hall there, and I and I, I saw Morrissey during the production of Ant Man and the Wasp, and he sounded great. <laughs> Would Louise's grandmother really be into the Smiths? I think I think she might. I think. She she might. It's, it's historically accurate. <laughs> uh, she loves his melancholic ballads. You know, 100%. Yeah. Do you have a bit of a blank slate when you're formulating a sequel? Or how much impact do, do do the other movies in the MCU have on where you can go and what you can do with, with these characters? Sure. Uh, it's a little bit of both, but, but primarily the former. You know, I mean, from, from the first film, from, from Iron Man 1 through this one, which is the 20th, uh, uh, MCU movie, which is an insane stat to me in, in a relatively short period of time. We've always known that the movies have to exist on their own. The, inter- the interconnectivity is fun, but some people are casual fans and see the movies they want to see. Some people see them all and know everything. And and uh, uh, and even if you, you, you are into them and you do see them, you can't be so burdened down by all the continuity that it affects the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ant-Man movies in particular exist in a, you know, pun intended, smaller corner of the Marvel Universe by design. And so we knew that this movie was going to come out in the wake of, a, of this massive um, universe crashing together story that is Infinity War and that there was n- no way nor reason to try to compete with the scope of that film. So by design, it was meant to be a, a contained film, a smaller film. Mm. And in particular, we liked the idea and we hit on it very early in development of being temporally contained, the taking place over a finite period of time. And so many of you know our favorite movies have have executed that conceit very well and so in in early conversations we talked about midnight run we talked about after hours we talked about go uh quick change and uh, you know a, a great bill murray film <laughs> yeah. that, that not a lot of people i don't i don't hear it come up in conversation a lot but the no it doesn't that, yeah the people that have seen it's it love film. it where there's a finite period of time a clear agenda and things just keep going wrong was mm-hmm. was kind of uh uh the inspiration when we first started talking about all this, but also uh, based on uh, Ant Man one being well received, the inkling planted in that idea that 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 Janet, that Hope's mom, Hank's long lost wife, could still be alive, and so those were kind of the two early ideas. And then within those, we're given a lot of freedom with with the creative partners in this to develop the story that we want. There's there's actually not a lot of um, of, of MCU demands, you know, you, you sort of have to inherit the reality that you're coming off of civil war and start your character in a place that makes sense with where the audience has known him to be. And then, uh, because this is a spoiler podcast, we'll talk about that mid credit scene. Uh, uh, you kind of know where you're heading, but by design, that's not in the body of the film, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it, we, and there was some conversations about where to put that, but it was it was Peyton who ultimately uh, said, you know, it, it should be after the body of the film because you tie it up in this perfect little bow where everyone gets what they want, almost too perfect, and then you hit them in the face <laughs> with uh, with something uh, uh, tonally different and and shocking and uh, yeah. to, to the rest of the tone of the movie, and that's just that's just good clean fun to, yeah. to be able to have that that whiplash opportunity within the body of the film. I mean, Marvel movies have for the most part. Infinity War's got a fairly decent cliffhanger, but they've avoided cliffhangers. This is as overt a cliffhanger as I can remember. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's you know it sort of in a lot of ways runs counter to to what I was saying about the films having to be self-contained. But, yeah. but again, 
uh, the, 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 the film ends. The story ends. You know what I mean? And, yeah. if, and if you stick around, which uh, a lot of people, you'd be surprised not everyone uh, either knows or cares to stick around in, in the credits. You know, there's always people getting up in the theater and then you always have the people saying, sit down, where are you going? Which is always kind of fun to watch. Uh, the Marvel fans <laughs> uh, inform their friends or, 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 or their, or their uh, fellow cinema goers about how Marvel movies work. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, it, it only tees up, I think, where we're going to go um, next in interesting ways. And yeah, Infinity, you talk about Infinity War. Is Infinity War a cliffhanger or is it, is that the Thanos movie? And well, again, it's very it's, successful it's and very you know, self-contained for, for him. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's having a great time at the end of it. Yeah. Everyone else, not so much. No, no, no. But it, it, the decision to set this before Infinity War is intriguing. And I imagine that's because tonally... It would be very hard to have a movie this breezy and this fun in a universe where half the world's population has suddenly disappeared. Exactly. Yeah, it's that. You know what I mean? We wanted to. It's an opportunity to have fun and be on the lighter side of the tonal MCU spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and also just picking up the baton of these events that Scott got uh, dragged into in Civil War. It felt like if you skipped past that too much, or if you skipped past the moment of of ant-man and the wasp coming together which which we hadn't seen uh and presumably has not happened off camera before you would have done this story and those characters a disservice so the very beginning of this movie is a recap slash prologue uh, mm-hmm. before we get the the marvel studios logo uh was that always the, the the case or was that a relatively late addition to remind people of who these characters were who janet was and the predicament that they're facing uh well the, some of the specifics of what we actually see in the prologue uh were developed during post-production but but the idea was always you have this character named janet van dyne um that we were lucky enough to have a great actress like michelle pfeiffer play mm-hmm. and the whole movie's about finding her and she was not cast, nor does she appear in the first film. So, so the whole, all the, the idea was always that you had to invest in this character as a human being. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we went after such a luminous star like Michelle was 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 all the all that she brings to to the role and, and, the, and the relationship that an audience has with her and her her career and how wonderful she is. In so many films, she makes a, a marvelous impact in a very. Uh, quick sequence in the beginning you know and what, what that sequence is doing is is asking the audience to invest in the search for someone that they, they don't really know you know that they um they, they haven't met other than this brief sequence but when you have michelle pfeiffer and you have that very touching bookend scenes where she's saying goodbye to her daughter and uh the father coming home and telling his daughter that that mom isn't coming home and and just the, you know sort of the narrative shorthand of if, if you were to lose one of your parents i think is is very easy thing to yeah. to get your head around you're asking the audience to invest in kind of the crazy places that this movie goes up until the very end when, when they do reconnect so so to answer your question yeah it was kind of always by design we knew we had to strike fast and and early to to get the audience on board with what the whole film's about were there more uh, Janet flashbacks uh, at any point started throughout the movie to again get us to get to know the character a little bit more and uh, to to invest in the character a bit more? No, it was always by design to supposed to be this uh, uh, sort of Wizard of Oz thing waiting at the end of the movie, you know, um, to hopefully have that emotional lift when that mask comes down to be like there she is, they found her. The one exception being. Um, what and maybe you spoke with Peyton about this a little bit is the sequence we referred to internally as the "All of Me" sequence, mm-hmm. uh, as, in, <laughs> as in Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin, yeah. wherein 
Janet speaks through Paul. So in a weird way, she does kind of pop up and has have a presence in the movie, and mm-hmm. and it and it kind of breaks a little bit of the narrative rules because they have a reunion, and she she tells her daughter she's proud of it. And it's, it's all happening kind of early in the middle of the film, which I like. It's sort of structurally mm-hmm. not what you should do, right? You should delay all that to the very end. Um, but I like that it kind of breaks the rules a little bit, and and that was a that was a weird big swing where it's like you're, you're, you're asking the audience to invest in this emotional reunion mm-hmm. in the most ludicrous uh, uh, way possible <laughs> with, with Paul channeling, uh, channeling Janet. And it was one of those sequences that, you know, it scared us. It was like, is this going to work? <laughs> this is going to fall on its face or be a home run. And uh, I think you should always kind of be on that, that edge, right? If, you're, if you don't have that feeling, you're probably not pushing yourself out uh, far enough. <laughs> And then in the first screening, uh, you know, we do these early screenings. You put it in front of an audience and, you, and you, you, you start to get a sense of what's working and what's not. You could tell they were so on board with Paul um, and, and just his performance and his character and, and with him that when it, that scene was about to come up, I leaned over to Kevin Feige, my boss, and I said, they're going to – this is going to work. They're with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> they like him so much they're going to go on this journey. And there's always that moment in every screening where I think it happens where Hank leans over and goes – Janet, and he, <laughs> where he confirms what the audience suspects, that, which is what's going on, that people just lose it, and it's a, it's a it's a big <laughs> laugh, but then it's also emotional, uh-huh. which is what I love about this this film, and 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 it, all credit goes to Peyton and his wonderful wonderful direction. It's it's really bizarre and really wacky and really out there and really funny, but always sincere. It is, there's not a, there's not a cynicism to to, to this film. Um, and that's such a tough tonal line to walk. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, hats off to Peyton for, for walking that in, in all these big weird swing scenes. So uh, obviously the, the first movie had a, a fair amount of strife uh, as you as you headed towards production mm-hmm. when Edgar Wright left and mm-hmm. the script was reworked somewhat and Peyton came on board. Um, this time you had a clear run at it. You knew that Peyton was on board. Uh, you had a writing team in place. Paul is part of that writing team. Was he part of the writing team in, in terms of, was he in the same room as the other writers? Or? Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was basically sort of two sets of writers over, over the course of the film, uh, ones that came on early mm-hmm. and then and then uh, uh, ones that sort of saw us through production. And Paul was a part of both of that. Paul mm-hmm. was sort of always there from sort of early days, cracking what we want this movie to be, down to, you know, what are the five versions of the of the lines that for this joke on set? You know, Paul, in a weird way, uh, uh, sometimes served in addition to being a wonderful lead actor, was also m- my on set production writer <laughs> that I would go into his tent, you know, his cooling tent where he's fully Ant Man suited, and we would talk about scenes, whether it's like structural you know, ideas or pitching jokes and pitching alts for lines and stuff like that. Yeah, and he wore both hats very well. Um, mm-hmm. I distracted myself. I was going to ask about the difference in coming into this movie, knowing that Peyton had a clear run of it, knowing that you had the, mm-hmm. the, the screenwriters that you had. Did that make a difference in terms? And also, did you have a list of things that you couldn't do in the last movie, maybe because of the internal strife that was going on at the time? Uh, no, I was. Yeah, I, well, I, I would say there was no list of things that w- mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to do in the, on the first film. Well, not, not necessarily weren't allowed to do, but couldn't do because of the time constraints and. Uh, there's always a clock, right? There's yep. always there's whether whether there's a situation like that or not. You're always sort of working against the clock. And uh, when it comes to the, to these films, they have a release date that keeps us honest because we're moving towards them. And, and, and in a weird way, I think that helps with the creative process because 
it all matters. You know that there's going to come a time where pencils down, the, the movie's done, and it, and it keeps you working. Um, and so it, there's always that that pressure, right? And it was the pressure of Peyton uh, sort of jumping on a moving train uh, when he did in the first one. And then when this one starts being developed, you know, the train is still moving because we're heading towards <laughs> that date, you know? And, and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, an origin story, there's, there's parameters to an origin story, right? Like you always try to play with the form and stuff like that. But to a certain extent, there's a framework there that of things you have to hit as you establish who these people are. Uh, if you, if you're lucky enough to come back to a sequel, the challenge is, uh, it's, it can be a bit of an open book and where do you go and, and how do you keep it fresh and, and, and having that sort of borderless thing at the start of the process, yeah. um, is exciting, but it, it can also be, uh, uh, daunting, and we talked about a bunch of different versions of this film. You know, all of them centered around uh, finding mom, finding Jan mm-hmm. in the quantum realm. But that came in many different forms, and and we we took a run at one version and peeled it back, and another version and peeled it back, and and uh, uh, just trying to find find the best story. And um, and also in and amongst all that, and this was something that Peyton uh, championed from day one. Making sure that everyone is moving forward, right? Because in a part one, you know, you're, you're, you're telling the story of these characters. They, they start in one place. They're in a different place by the end of the movie. You know, particularly Scott Lang, who goes from being an ex-con to, to, to being um, this sort of reluctant hero. Mm-hmm. The challenge in a part two is to make sure that you're not treading water, that everyone is moving forward, that everyone still has a story left to tell, mm-hmm. a journey to go on. Um, you know, you, you had... Michael and Evangeline's characters at odds, and then they reconcile. Mm-hmm. So where do you find them in this? You know, how do you, how do you make sure that they're still still on a journey, and you're not, I don't know, watching people frozen in amber? You know, I think that was very important to Peyton. So a lot of those early conversations were about those dynamics and where they're going to go, and watching Hope come into her own as the hero, and then watching the circumstances of, of Civil War fracture that partnership that they then have to rebuild if they're mm. going to make good on the title of the film. Uh, watching Luis build a business, right, and go from being uh, the, the small-town criminals that they were to getting a taste of the hero life in part one and uh, and, and wanting to do something else while circumstances and life and everything uh, standing in the way of that. Um, that's how I think the way into a part two keeps it fresh and keeps it interesting. But by the very nature of Scott's house arrest, his imprisonment at the beginning of the film, he is trapped in amber a little bit. He is treading in water and uh, connecting him to the main plot because the film is driven, uh, I say plot-wise and emotionally, by Hank and Hope, Mm -hmm. uh, not Scott necessarily, uh, which is a very interesting decision, first Mm -hmm. of all. But can you talk about that you you guys have a lot of back and forth about how to connect Scott to the main drive of the of the film, which is the search for for Janet, we did, and we we wanted to to get him organically involved, and we wanted to make sure that there was a fun conflict there. And then when we when we hit on the idea of of because of the events of the first film of him going quantum, that he became the the conduit for this this information they need to find Janet. That seemed really cool to me. So in, in a weird way. He, you know, in a film with a few MacGuffins, he, he has a MacGuffin in, in, in he is a MacGuffin in and of himself in that he has this information in his head. They are mad at him. They don't want to have anything to do with him, but they kind of reluctantly have to drag him along. They don't want him to be there. He doesn't want to be there. So, so you have this wonderful sort of reluctance among everyone else mm. that right away throws these characters in believable organic conflict in a way that um, – uh, I can buy and I think makes sense based on how we saw them sort of come together in the first film. And then it's all just uh, wrecked by the time this film starts in a way that, that's fun and allows for, for growth and for um, uh, some fun place to go. And uh, 
The movie is obviously called Ant-Man and the Wasp, and that was announced very early on, I think very, very shortly after the first film came out. So you knew very, very early on that this was going to be about equal status, about equal billing. Uh, and it's interesting that Hope does drive the film emotionally. She does get uh, a lot of the action beats are hers as well. Can you talk about uh, that decision of putting them both on an equal basis? Absolutely. I mean, you know, by design, we, we didn't develop or, or, or title the movie Ant-Man 2. It was never that. It was always uh, uh, the, the introduction of Wasp to the forefront um, was... One of the main reasons, not the main reason, to, to to revisit this and to tell this story again, and so it was important to us that it feels like a, a fifty-fifty story, and that they both get their due, and that and that, like you said, she is such a driving part of the emotion and the, and the plot and the, and the and the character of the story of this film, um, but that the film is is also about them coming together. It's about the dynamics of a team and how teams can work together. And more than, you know, we, we talk about families and, and family issues and stuff, or, you know, appear in a lot of Marvel movies. But this mm-hmm. one really seems to be at the core of what this film is about and uh, and about what family can mean, you know, and what what partnership dynamics can mean and about how we have the families that we're born with and we also have the families that we choose to be with. And it felt like there was an opportunity here to, to have two people coming together and choosing to be together and choosing to have a dynamic where it where like a like a partnership like a marriage um it's not always easy and sometimes uh, uh your partner's flaws uh can be hard to live mm. with or, or or make make relationship dynamics uh difficult ultimately by choosing that path to be together uh, uh you can both make yourselves better and be be stronger together and that was interesting to explore to us whether it's a superhero team that chooses to be together or in a lot of ways, it's a film about fathers and daughters, you know, Scott and his daughter, mm-hmm. uh, Hank and, um, and and Hope, and then uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne and sort of his the surrogate daughter that, that he that he takes on in Hannah's character, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, again, is a choice. There's, you know, there's not a familiar relationship there, but it's about the choices we make and, and the, the bonds we choose to create, you know. And I think that's a lot about the significance of, of the title, like like as individuals, but also mm-hmm. as coming together. But you also have this idea that uh, Scott and Hope are a couple. And mm-hmm. clearly in the interim between the between Civil War and the first Ant-Man, mm-hmm. they, they hooked up, properly mm-hmm. hooked up. Uh, Hope says that line about, you know, we're working together, training together and other stuffing together as right. well. And Scott is clearly still head over heels uh, in love with her. Mm-hmm. And... Can you talk about pushing that and resolving that at the end, where they actually they do they do come together as a couple? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it's it's so tricky. We talked a lot about point of entry, right? Like, where do you meet these characters? Because you had sort of seen the suggestion that the, that their relationship had developed into something romantic by the end of that first film. And um, if you come into this film and everything's fine and rosy, where do you go? But but also, how do you sort of um, uh, uh, organically split them apart, right? So the notion to, to sort of suggest that because of Scott's actions and Scott's tendency to, in his, in his always wanting to do the right thing and kind of having bad consequences, right? Which is what Civil War was. I, I think I should go do this, but then there's consequences, right? Mm. I think I should help Louise, but I told him where we were and now there's consequences. It's kind of this recurring theme where because of his his, his compass, he sometimes gets himself in trouble. Mm. And uh, uh, that's kind of the circumstances at the start of this film. And people talk a lot about the, the truth serum scene as kind of like a, a highlight of the film. And one of the reasons I, I love that scene is that you, we sort of sneakily just 
smuggle in all this exposition about where they are as characters and where they are as partners, both romantic and otherwise. And all their hopes and fears are just allowed to be literally spoken out loud about how I'm worried if I trust him, he's going to mess things up. You know, you're learning everything you need to know about these two people and the circumstances of how what was working got broken back together and is maybe at this point in the movie being put back together. It's all just put out there in a way that's mm. that's super fun, and and I like that in a way that uh, 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 sort of helps us in a weird. It sort of puts that whole relationship in a. In a uh, we were able to fast forward through a lot of complexities yeah. in a weird way, yeah. in a way that was satisfying to 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 getting into their their heads in, in a relationship. Uh, I spoke to Peyton in the past, I think roughly not too long after the title was announced, about the multi generational uh, aspect of the title as well. Mm-hmm. There, there are two. Ant Men, and there are two wasps in this movie. Mm-hmm. But what you've done so far uh, in, in both movies is resist Hank Pym suiting up, mm-hmm. and Janet doesn't suit up uh, either. Was that ever on the table uh, in this movie? Uh, two wasps, two Ant Men running around. Uh, there was sequences um, where we saw uh, more of Ant Man and Wasp, um, vintage first generation mm-hmm. Ant Man and Wasp, in some of their past adventures. Um, but the idea was never to uh, have them all suited up at the same time uh, um, in the same same time period in contemporary times. I, I do like the idea that it's a legacy character, right? And that there's a passing of the man. I don't know. Something would seem wrong about the idea of like two people holding the title at once. You know, I think I think <laughs> it's like uh, it's like it's like political office, right? <laughs> Did you have when you were making this movie again that that blank slate that you have did you have a list of things that we want to do in this film and one of them is a car chase through san francisco imagine bullet but if steve mcqueen could shrink and and enlarge Mm -hmm. at will yes (laughs) the short answer is yes uh uh, shrinking and growing as a concept is just so amazing and limitless and it's and it's fun and surprise and the first movie did some amazing stuff with it, but I think even Peyton would tell you, you only got a chance to scratch the surface. So from a starting place, we were like, we have to go uh, uh, turn it up to 11 with, with all the ideas of, in, in this film. And the notion that there's been some amazing car chase sequences um, throughout throughout the film, throughout film history, uh, uh, what can we do that's new and bring something new to it? And of course, the idea of like shrinking and growing and... Um, uh, and, you know, just coming up with ideas and gags and stunts and stuff like that. On top of all that, you do it through San Francisco where there's all these elevation chases. Mm-hmm. You make the MacGuffin a, a building, which is really fun. <laughs> the idea that they're chasing a, a shrunken building that you've established the heroes and the villains both need an equal measure uh, to, to get what they want. Uh, oh, and by the way, you're going to cross cut to this this crazy, wacky quantum realm, you know. So mm-hmm. it was a sequence that uh, – uh, was a lot of fun. We developed it over many, many months and and editorially continued to refine the balance of, of how much is too much and, and when to cross cut to the quantum realm and, and just finding that line between uh, exhilarating fun uh, without, uh, you know, beating the audience over the head with action and, 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 and making it feel too long. And it was, it was a, a tricky balance, but I'm, I'm proud of that sequence. I'm proud that it delivers on the... Uh, on the ideas and the, and the mm. concepts of, of this wacky thing that's mm. a part of this universe. It's fantastic. And then you also have the, uh, you know, as established in the Civil War, that, that Scott can become Giant Man as well. Yeah. But how do you know when to deploy Giant Man and how much, how big is too big, essentially? Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, I think there was a little bit of, uh, of good-natured one-upsmanship from Peyton after seeing Civil War because – 
Peyton didn't get to introduce the idea of Giant Man. It came in, in Civil War. <laughs> yeah. And that is such an amazing moment, you know, in that film. When it happens and he laughs, he's like, oh, it's a great moment. And then I crack up. I think it's it's Downey soon after that goes, anyone else have any other super <laughs> secret abilities? It's, yeah. it's so funny. And it's it, it was it was such a great moment. And, and it was and it was you only get to be a giant man in the MCU for the first time once. Yeah. So knowing that. That was not in an Ant Man movie. That was in a, in a Captain America movie. The onus was, okay, we can't. Ju- we have to keep going with the idea. We have to expand on the idea. It can't. The, the notion of it existing isn't enough. So uh, it, we we hit very quickly upon uh, a couple things. Uh, the idea that the suit doesn't work very well, mm-hmm. uh, um, and that it's faulty, which and and led to some fun uh, uh, set pieces, which I, I have to tip my hat to my time with Shane Black. When I made Iron Man three, who was you know the best at, at these circumstantial action set pieces and the Iron Man suit always being faulty, you know, mm. I learned that at the feet of Shane, who I think is genius, and just a lot of the tone I think of Shane's movies is in this movie too as well. Mm. If you look at like the nice guys and stuff like that, and also you know what we inelegantly referred to in development as variable man, the idea of of, of you've got <laughs> Ant Man and Giant Man, what if you can go in between? Yeah, and the idea of uh, of the fun of of three foot Paul Rudd's. <laughs> um, was immediately apparent as as a, as a set piece and uh, twisting the notion of a heist in a school, you know. But you're heisting a, a little girl's backpack is is was fun to us. And then that you know giant man in the bay sequence, the idea of just like kind of holding and holding and holding until the very end of that sequence, and then he just sort of goes really big. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of layers to that that make me laugh with, yeah. the, with the whale and his feet coming out like a like a breach. And Tim Heidecker you know, and the whole the whole <laughs> the whole kitten caboodle. And also, you, you have this idea that uh, he can't sustain being giant man for very long. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. As what happens happens. Totally. It's a, yeah. So that whole sequence uh, is built upon reversals, and you know, this person has a lab, then then that person has a lab. They get the lab, but oh no, you know, he's too big, and that's a new problem. Like there's an escalation to. Problem, solution, problem, solution uh, throughout that sequence that makes it really fun. There was a, a shot last year you debuted, you announced Michelle Pfeiffer with that great history of the MCU, uh, which I don't think it's been released officially, has it? It hasn't, no. It hasn't. Yeah. Is that ever going to be on the DVD? Uh, or the, the perhaps, preview? yeah. There was talk of, uh, of putting it out uh, ahead of this, but it was made at a time where panther and infinity were unable to be included so it sort of felt like yeah, yeah you're yeah. leaving out two of the most you know <laughs> culturally relevant huge motion pictures uh, uh in the mcu so it, it felt a little a little a little out of step as a device uh, so there were there were a couple of things in that I, w- I wanted to talk about very briefly there was a, a glimpse i believe of concept art of michael douglas in the suit mm-hmm. which i imagine was just was that just a very very early I think idea? I think it was the the quantum. If I'm remembering oh, correctly, suit? it might okay. be the quantum suit that he's okay. in in the film. Yeah, and and then there was the, a shot of Giant Man peeking around a uh, a building. Yes, yeah, uh, which isn't in the film. Was that just a a thing that you included for for that reel? Yeah, it was early. That's like you know as we're developing the script, and we knew we wanted the idea of being the wrong size for the for the wrong moment. Meaning, like, geez, it would be really helpful if I was normal size right now, and I have to, I, I'm, you know, 20 feet tall and I have to employ stealth. So um, uh, I'm sneaking around uh, places where yeah. uh, I need to be kept quiet or you're three feet tall and you need to get in and out of a school kind of thing. <laughs> so from those early concept designs is what things like uh, 
him pedaling around on the flatbed truck like yes. a scooter. Yeah. Those ideas come from like, uh, you know, I, I really wish the suit was working and I could um, uh, be the appropriate size. Yeah. That's not what life has dealt me at this moment. I'm intrigued by the quantum realm. And uh, was I, I spoke to Peyton a little bit about this, about uh, early ideas of spending longer in the quantum realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what sort of discussions did you have uh, about that? And, you know, as you'll know, having worked in Doctor Strange, um, is there an audience tolerance issue with being in somewhere that trippy, that psychedelic for, for a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, we, we had a lot of early conversations about the balance of, of the quantum realm and, and early ideas had them going down there, you know, at the end of the first act and being much more of like a, um, a, a movie in the, in the wilds of that. And we sort of pulled back from there because it felt like it, we weren't allowed to do some of the other things we, we wanted to do if we, if we went there too much. Um, I, I think there's more to do there. And, and right now, um, uh, if we, at this point in the process on the first Ant-Man, based on a, on a glimmer of what you saw if you froze your DVD at the right place. Mm-hmm. We had the idea of, well, maybe what if part two was about finding Janet, you know? Uh, and it was an inkling of an idea. Um, nothing's been announced or, you know, I'm not coyly sitting on any announcement. There really is no, <laughs> no, no plans for, for, for an next one. But, but you can't help but talk as, as filmmakers and creative people about where you would go, go next if you ever got the opportunity. And we talk a lot about the quantum realm. And, and, and there would be perhaps more opportunity to – to go down there and maybe there's, there's, uh, maybe there's more down there, um, uh, than we realize. And clearly Janet's been up to something and has different clothes on and some yep. weapons. Where, where did those come from? And, and similarly, if you look at the at right moment and freeze a, uh, a DVD in a certain place, maybe you'll see something else as well that they could tip yeah. a hat to where the story could go. Uh, to answer your question about if the audience is tolerance, I think for sure you can't, you can't beat them too much over the head with, with, too zaniness for too long. Uh, uh, the sequence you're referring to in Strange, we, we called internally the Magical Mystery Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we just wanted to go crazy. And, and Scott was was totally on board with trying to make that as mind-trippy as possible. And I think that will always be an inherent inherent to the quantum realm. But yeah, there's a balance. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, can't annoy too much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just very briefly about the the final, the, the first post-credits sting. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Ant playing the drums, but the uh, the other one. Uh, can you talk about the evolution of that, where that, that idea came from, and how much of it is dictated by what the Russos want to do in the position that they want to have characters in? For example, mm-hmm. I imagine having Scott on the board is very, very useful for Avengers 4, and does that dictate that Hank and Janet and Hope are all dusted at, at the end? Uh, there's, a, there's a conversation, you know, between the two films. And we were shooting on one end of Pinewood Atlanta and they were shooting the other end of Pinewood Atlanta. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's, there's, a, there's a plan where, um, about where the MCU is headed, obviously. Um, uh, that's always made against the balance of what the individual's films need. So, so uh, that scene, directed by Peyton mm-hmm. um, and, and written by you know, the, the writers uh, uh, on this film, in addition to uh, uh, Chris and Steve, mm-hmm. uh, Marcus McFeely on the mm-hmm. other film, also took a pass at it. So there is a little bit of a collaboration about where it needs to go. But, but by design, it's, it's after the credits. Like what, what I like about it, and we talked about where should it go? Should it go at the end of the mm. film? Should it go at, mm. the, at the end? You know, kind of what's the best play, place for it? And there's a little bit of conversation there. But, but Peyton, smartly, was the one that said, no, what you want to do is you want to end the film. You want to tie it up in a, in a perfect bow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, almost a little too perfect, maybe. <laughs> you know, like, like, <laughs> like it's, it's such a happy ending. They live happily ever after. Because you know credits are going to roll and you're just going to 
punch the audience in the face yeah. with 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 you know a kind of a shocking tonal sad shift. Um, and and I think that's a great example of of kind of filmmakers and writers and directors and, and all sort of coming together and, and getting excited about about kind of telling the story together. You know, it, it's not there's not a prescriptive nature to it or you have to do this, you have to do that. It's quite the opposite. It's like a it's like a creative um, uh, session where everyone gets a gets a hand in it in this particular part of it. Mm. You know, this very particular sliver of the film. Obviously, the body of the film is is is, is Peyton's, um, but it's fun. It's a unique opportunity and, 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 and really embraced it. It's cool. And are there discussions about things like the like the timeline of both movies and how uh, where this takes place in relation to Infinity War? Obviously, the tag takes mm-hmm. place at the same time as the end of Infinity War, mm-hmm. uh, but the the movie itself is that a couple of days beforehand? Is that a couple of weeks beforehand? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think probably n- not not much before the events of it. You know, we we kind of by design have avoided dating the MCU too much and avoiding too many years just because it, it you know you want it to feel like it's a little bit timeless and can be revisited over the mm-hmm. years there's a couple of markers here and there you know mm-hmm. uh, Howard Stark's death and, and things like that um, but yeah I, I think that's a fair assessment kind of mm-hmm. like you know relatively temporally close to to the events of that film Stephen it's been an absolute pleasure oh same same thank here you so thank much. you so much cheers man take care Okay, so that was Stephen Broussard and Peyton Reed. Now it is our turn to tackle this movie, which I honestly, guys, I thought was a lot of fun. And I know that you are not quite as enthusiastic about this movie as I am. And I totally understand why. Because these movies, I think, the Ant-Man movies, are intended as a palate cleanser for the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe. The first one's no coincidence that the first one came out after Age of Ultron. Huge, epic all sorts of stuff happening in that film. Cities floating in the air. Absolutely. And I've got a bow and arrow. What? <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, James Spader. Oh, you know, just James oh Spader. My God. Just James Spader would be enough. And then you have Infinity War with, oh God, people Everything. turn into dust and stuff. Falling and, off things. Oh. And, oh, madness. And now this movie comes along and it is, I think, deliberately, conceptually, a slight film. It is a small movie. There are no, until the end, and we'll talk about that in a second, obviously, mm. there are no major, huge ramifications in this movie. Think for future for future installments. It is very much a small movie with an yeah. occasionally big lead. Ant-Man. Yeah. And I think that's fine. Uh, I, had a, I had a blast with it, but you guys feel a little bit differently. I, I don't have a problem with the smallness, uh, I don't think. And I don't have a problem with, um, obviously, the characters. I think, you know, uh, Luis and, and Scott, great great characters um my i guess my issues with it were it didn't feel as maybe emotionally effective as as the last few marvel films have felt for me um and and i know you disagree with me on chris on this chris and we'll, we'll get to that but i don't feel it earned the addition to its title i don't feel it earned and the wasp because i don't think as a character that hope and dime was given enough to do to be a co-lead i think as an action heroine she absolutely was in there she is she is a fantastic fantastic action scene that sort of kicks things off in, in that respect she's she's very powerful she's very strong there is no real character development for her as far as i was concerned you don't see where she lives you don't know anything about her friends you know both of those things for scott you know both of those things for him you see his family you see his relationships but you really have very very little sense of any relationships for her and i felt like her character was so neglected um by that that it really kind of let me down a little bit i don't think she has any 
And I think that's one of the interesting things about the, this 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 movie. This movie fills this movie has a two year gap between the events of Civil War and and, and the Wasp and yeah. a three year gap between the events of the first movie and, and this mm-hmm. and it asks you to take for granted an awful lot of stuff that has happened off screen so we're told that when Scott has, steals or borrows rather yes the Ant-Man technology and goes off to uh, Germany and helps Captain America that causes a schism uh, between himself and Hank and Hope with whom of course he was having a relationship mm-hmm. um and then we don't see what happens in the two years between those the, the, those events. So we don't see Hank and Hope being compromised by the government or being targeted by the government and suddenly having to go on the run or, or developing the pin particles technology yeah, yeah. a little further. But, but we but, have to assume, I think, that they, she doesn't have a relationship other than her father and but that's then sad. that has to be yeah that, that is sad but then that has to be a point for her character and that is entirely tacit in this film it's not developed that is there is you know you could still see where she's living for example that could there could still be a moment where she is on her own and not interacting with a man and there isn't it just it, it felt vastly underdeveloped i didn't feel like i learned anything about her you're right all of that is mm. mentioned in passing but even even the scenes with them i mean their love story was underdeveloped in the first one it's if if anything, less developed in this one. But we're, we're still, I think, supposed to care about it. We're still supposed to care that these two get back together, that they find something with each other. And I, I don't get that. Mm. But, you know, she's kind of driven to, you know, rescue her mum, we're, we're told, for, or we, we assume, from, from the quantum realm. But it's her dad who comes up with the idea. She doesn't even get to sort of, you know, originate that plan. I don't feel like she has much agency in this, and I thought that was a real letdown. See, that's interesting. I don't necessarily know that I need to see where someone lives or to have an idea of their life. But I think she is the emotional driver of the story. I think she uh, she's the first person we see, essentially. You know, a very young Hope uh, hiding in the wardrobe from her, from her mother, spooky CG Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. I thought that, it was quite good CG, Michelle Pfeiffer, to be honest. I thought the CG, the, the de-ageified CG, was a little oh, off in this one. It was pretty good, pretty good, but not uh, not the high point of Kurt Russell and his bouncy hair in, <laughs> in Guardians 2. Uh, or scary Robert Downey Jr. in Civil War. Anyway, I digress. But I feel that she drives the movie from an emotional point of view. It's interesting that then she doesn't get to go into the quantum realm. Ultimately, no. but that's given to Hank, and I guess that makes sense. But I feel that she is every bit, she drives this movie every bit. She gets to do all the cool action stuff. Scott Lang in this movie is reduced to the role of bumbling sidekick, and that's fine. I'm totally okay with that because he's very, very funny. I, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like he was the sidekick though, because most of the emotional development I saw was about him. There was about him, his daughter, you know, his ex-wife and her husband feature where where we get to see their relationship now in the sense of them as regards to him. Mm -hmm. His friends take a role. We spend some time hanging out with him doing nothing. You know, there's there's nothing comparable to that there you don't even see development really between her and her dad i just yeah I, that this is I, it was really lacking for me and i thought it was a real real sort of but i agree i mean in terms of action and stuff she's absolutely on top of it she's great mm. i do feel you're wrong helen and i'm gonna run away now so <laughs> sorry you go jimbo you've been very very quiet in the corner yes, you're writing your diehard feature what, I, what are you doing i am actually yes uh, i've been in the quantum realm sorry i'm okay. i'm now returning yeah it was a film 
Great. So let's take some questions here. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I, like, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. Um, for me, it is better than Incredible Hulk and better than uh, Iron Man 2. But other than that, it's way down at the bottom of the Are you the putting Marvel this at number 18 on your list? I, I am putting it just below Thor The Dark World. So number nine um, on your list. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's fine. It just for me, it did everything the first film did, but not as well, and without as much charm. And and that I think was an issue for me. I felt like a lot of the gag it relied on a lot of the same gags and and didn't execute them as as uh, adroitly. Also, there were fewer insect puns than I would have liked, <laughs> and it bugged me. Oh, oh I was ticked off by the. <laughs> it's a different superhero. Lousy. Writing, I'm running out of things to say. Although I enjoyed the, I preferred it when you weren't speaking. Antagonist, <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh. You redeemed yourself. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Okay, that's enough now. That's enough. <laughs> that's just my two centipedes. No, oh. that was that was too far. Was this too movie far. does lack a human centipede. Maybe no. that's the bad guy in, yeah. in the no. third movie. No, if there is a third movie, mm. they go to quantum realm and just. No. If together. there is a third movie, then it would be the lesser of three weevils. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you to Captain Jack Aubrey for that joke. <laughs> that was that was good. That was good. Um, no, I, I honestly, uh, this might surprise you and, and confound you, but uh, or concern you, which is a word I made up a few minutes ago in a phone call and turned out to be an actual word. So there you go. Um, like as in consternation. Consternation. Yeah. yeah. So I'm concerned. You would think I'm concerned about this. This has concerned me. Uh, you are concerning me right now, young young miss, uh, with your controversial wasp opinions. Um, anyway, I feel that this is slightly better than the original. And when I feel the room dropping a couple of, de- <laughs> a couple of degrees in temperature when I say that, I will try and justify before you kill me. <laughs> I enjoy the first movie a great deal. Uh, it has a lot of rewatchability. It is one of those movies when my wife, Drink a Game, and I are watching just flicking through sky or whatever yeah. and we happen upon ant-man it's one of those movies we will watch until the end sure when the first movie came out it obviously had all that baggage of what had happened with edgar wright vacated the director's chair i think just six weeks before filming began and they had to like shut down production for you know and bring in peyton reed and mm-hmm. paul rudd and adam mckay came in to rewrite the script and there was a whole lot of stuff going on and I I feel that this movie has the clear benefit of a writing team, uh, in-house Marvel guys, plus Paul Rudd, no Adam McKay this time, sadly, and a director who has a clear run at the material and knows what they want to do and has, and has more confidence and more cohesiveness, I would say. If you go back and rewatch the first movie, the first half an hour has some great stuff in it Baskin Robbins always founds out bro you know that stuff <laughs> really funny moments the first half hour is a little flat and the the work that the movie does to tie itself in knots to justify things like Scott Lang being a cat burglar when really he's a good guy was, though he's a good guy there was yeah. some concern apparently at, at Marvel about how far do they push it can they have an anti-hero as, as the hero uh, and other things like, you know, his his connection to Hank Pym, exactly when does Hank Pym become aware of him and all that stuff. The hoops that movie jumps through to make that stuff work doesn't entirely work. It, it really starts kicking into gear once he becomes Ant-Man and starts going through his training montage. Then it is just a huge bundle of fun. 
This movie has confidence right from the off. I, I just had a breeze with it. The Scott Lang at House Arrest stuff. I really enjoyed Randall Park. I, I like Walton Goggins. No, you don't uh, particularly approve of Walton Goggins. No, no, in this movie. I'm, I'm, I'm Gogglebox for Goggins. I, lo- I love a Goggins. <laughs> I just didn't enjoy him in this because I didn't think he fit tonally. But, uh, but I, I, I love a Goggins yeah. generally. Wall to wall Goggins, wall to wall Walton. Again, these are the slight movies, and but I had I had fun with it. I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't fun. There was lots of fun. That what I said was my main, you mm. know. It was gentle fun. Yeah, yeah gentle was, fun. Yeah. I had I had I had reservations as well, but I did have a good time watching it. I laughed mm. a lot. You know, it's it's not that it's not entertaining, mm. um, and obviously, any time spent in the company of Paul Rudd is a good time. I find so. I just I've seen some bad films this summer. Skyscraper and quite a bit of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> and I don't think that this falls in the same category. Oh, no, definitely no, it's not. Well, it's, not, it's a three-star, it's a recommendation. Yeah, it's, it's a recommendation. I would, go, just, I, I would have gone that extra star. I would but, not. But, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly less taken with this than you. I don't think, even if it had not been following on from two spectacular Marvel movies this year, I still don't think that it would be... Well, arguably, uh, it's following on the run of... You know, if you count Guardians 2, and I would, in the run of mm. the great, mm. the great mm. run. Guardians 2, Spider-Man mm. Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, and it's I'm, coming at the end of those. It, it feels like a, a lesser piece of work. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Guardians 2 is also a lesser work. Like, it has moments of absolute unmitigated genius. But all the ego stuff falls very flat for me. But that's, that's another podcast. That Literally. is another podcast. You can yeah. listen to that right now, our Guardians <laughs> 2 spoiler special. Featuring James Gunn. Uh, <laughs> having spoken to Peyton Reed, it's interesting because he and Stephen Broussard foist some things that this movie was going for that I don't entirely think it was successful at. But once you know that's, that's what it's going for, it'd be interesting to go back and, and watch it again. Mm-hmm. So the, I do mid- look forward to seeing it again. Midnight Run is a big influence in this movie. Elmore Leonard is a big influence in this movie. Rather than it being the, the, the heist movie of the first film, they wanted more of a shaggy dog crime story Hence Walton Goggins. Um, knowing that, I'll be very intrigued to go back and see how the movie how the, how the movie mm. plays. But they make a very, very deliberate decision in this film, which is, post credits thing aside, and we'll talk about that in a second, it is a film that has zero body count. Yeah. Happy endings for everybody, except Walton Goggins. Who, but even then, he gets arrested, and you get a sense that he's going to turn his life around, and he's going to be <laughs> he's going to be a nice guy now. And no, I can't remember the character's name, so I'm just going to call him Walton Goggins. <laughs> Walton Goggins is a better name than 99% of all character names in the history of cinema. So, <laughs> what, yeah, true. Do you know what I mean? He was, of course, Sonny Birch. Sonny Birch. That's not a bad name. It's not a bad name, but it's not as good as Walton Goggins, yeah. is it? But yeah, Sonny Birch is an Elmore Leonard name. Walton Goggins is an Full Elmore on. Leonard name. It's quite Cohen Brothers, I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Can, they would definitely have a Walton Goggins if he hadn't got there first. He'd be a shopkeeper. He might be, but mm, he might have a, a sideline. Snickety shopkeeper. <laughs> anyway, so what do you think of that decision? This is quite a, a, a gentle, tame diversion of a film. Yeah, and I, I, I'm up for that. I, th- I think we can keep at the sort of operatic levels of of infinity war or ragnarok in a com- more comic opera sort of way uh, or even black panther you know you you can't sustain that indefinitely you you do have to mix it up and i think that's one of the things that marvel is doing right which is to to kind of keep varying the tone varying the scale and varying the stakes of their films um increasingly well as they go uh, so i have i have no issue with with that whatsoever i think i think it was uh, nice that you know for a lot of the a lot of the running time on a lot of occasions his big stress was can I get home before I'm found 
away from home, you know, which is, you know, it's Ferris Bueller. That is, you know, Christopher Reeve's Superman. That's a, that's a great sort of little kind of running gag. I would have actually liked more to be made of that. I felt like at times yeah. it wasn't high stakes enough in that respect for him because he's made it very clear in, in dialogue throughout the film that he cannot be caught breaking house arrest. He cannot let his daughter down that way. He has to fulfill his sentence and and get clean basically with the law um and so there were times when that was threatened and i thought that should have shown higher stakes even in his face it didn't need you know a lot of extra screen time but it just needed a little philip there with an f to to make it clear that he was this is a big big deal he has to be home you know Mm, i know i agree with that let's skip ahead then to to where the stakes become real Mm. And that is the first post-credit sting, mm-hmm. uh, in which Scott Lang is stranded in the quantum realm, uh, whilst Hope, Janet Van Dyne, the newly retrieved Janet Van Dyne, and Hank Pym are dusted by yeah. Thanos. Yeah. Uh, did we see it coming? What do we think of it? And what do we think it, it means for Avengers 4 and beyond? Well, this was an interesting one, because y- you always knew that this is the film that couldn't exist in the aftermath of Infinity War, because tonally it just wouldn't work at all, because it would just be a massive bummer from top to bottom. It would also ruin Avengers 4. Um, so I wondered whether it was going to be concurrent, would it happen before, you know, how would it play out? I'm, and I'd kind of forgotten about the Thanos factor, by the time we got to the end of the film. And then when we got to that sting, it really took me by surprise. Yeah. I thought they they did it really, really nicely. There was a, a gasp, like a huge yeah. gasp around the cinema at yeah. that point. And deliberately, they don't... Like, you see the ashes dissipating. You don't see them actually disintegrate. And I think that was an important cut, to cut to them while it's just happened, not to see it happening. Because, again, it wouldn't fit with the tone. It'd be a massive bummer and it wouldn't fit with the tone of the movie. So, yeah, really skillfully, artfully done. Mm. I was very pleased with that. I do have questions about the timeline. You'll be shocked (laughs) to hear. Of course you do. Of course you do. So, I feel like Black Widow knows whereof she speaks. Like, she does not mess around. She does not approximate. If she says they're under house arrest... They are currently, at that time, under house arrest, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, she, wouldn't have, she wouldn't have mucked that up, basically. And we know he's out of house arrest by the end of the film, mm-hmm. right? So the time between him leaving house arrest... A couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. So that must be our time frame for Infinity War as well. That must be the time frame between sort of Edinburgh, or them rather arriving back at uh, Infinity, Infinity Avengers War, headquarters. Infinity War takes place in about a day. Well, then so, we've got a problem with the timeline, Chris. No, we don't. We just have Black Widow got it wrong. No, how, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, Natasha. I just, I just she think... She knows diddly squat. Look, you, the, look the, 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 stake, the, the stake is the world. You don't think she's going to double-check her diary? I feel a little bit like it, it's amazing that the invasion of, you know, omnipotent aliens didn't make the news. But this is the thing, of course... <laughs> That that is entirely plausible, actually, because all that happened was there was a bit of fighting in New York, mm-hmm. which by this point is no big deal. There was a bit of fighting in Edinburgh, which like nobody pays attention to, and there was Wakanda, which nobody knows about practically, even though it's opened up. Like it's still not a big thing. Like that is there kind was of a okay. Giant spaceship hovering over that, New York, and I know, know that's become quite commonplace. That, does, that does make the news. They, they see it in Infinity War. That's how uh, Wanda and the Vision mm. know that something bad is happening. Uh, and then they get attacked by terrible CG. Yeah. But maybe um, Scott's just TiVo'd it, and that's really. But I, 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 a few people have written in asking about that. I don't think that's an issue. I really don't. Uh, I think Helen's absolutely right. 
Something happens in the morning in New York. A spaceship comes down. Tony Stark disappears. Everyone's like, oh, okay, well, this well again. Okay, that's happened. Uh, Edinburgh is... Nobody sees Edinburgh happen, so no yeah. one really knows. There's just that a bit of damage the next morning, basically. Yeah, you know? which is you know just like after a rugby game or something, and then uh, and then you have Wakanda, Wakanda, which is hidden from the, the that battle is hidden from the world's eyes. Uh, only Shield know about it at the end of the, of the thing. They don't have like commentators. And in actually, place. the timing on the Shield thing is also kind of weird. So you know, there's there's some timing issues all over that that one. Oh. We discussed that in the Avengers, oh, which is also available right now. If you want to listen to that, but yeah, I thought it's, I thought this thing was fantastic and really, really well uh, set up, mm-hmm. uh, really well executed, and of course leads to lots of interesting questions for what is going to happen next. Well, one of the questions that actually leads to somebody was asking me on Twitter this week, and apologies, I forget who, um, what, where, and when, and how Captain Marvel is. She's she's clearly within paging distance, but she's clearly not at risk of being dusted. Is mm-hmm. the implication of of Nick Fury turning he to her? He ho- he hopes. So perhaps she's somewhere outside, sort yeah. of away. I think the question is not somewhere, but somewhere. Somewhere, sure. Yeah. But and that's a super magic pager. If it's somewhere, I'm just saying. If there's a if there's an if there's a sort of if you can step backstage, sort of thing, then that would explain why Hank is fine and why she's fine. That they're backstage so they they've kind of sat out the scott scott i'm sorry um so if if you can be sort of backstage that would explain why she's fine that would explain why scott is fine so you're sort of out of danger at that point you're not going to be in the 50 percent yeah i i have a feeling that scott survives our luck and perhaps because uh he's needed for the next movie but (laughs) but i think that i i don't think the click extends to the quantum realm is what i'm saying that's a possibility, but I also are you suggesting that Captain Marvel's in the quantum realm, or similarly, some somewhere outside. else? So, uh, yeah, but it, but yeah, you're right. If she is some when, if she's not in the present day, then the click won't affect her. Yeah, but Scott, I think, just got lucky uh, that the screenwriters well. needed him. Yeah. <laughs> just one of those things. Uh, I'm intrigued to see what happens. I wonder how he gets out. Could it be the tardigrades that Janet Van Dyne mentions, or the? Time vortex that she mentions <laughs> well, which out of, the, of nowhere. I, I would say the tardigrades are probably more likely there, wouldn't you? So, Giant yeah. bear things. Well, yeah. as we all know, tardigrades are the key to spore drive travel. That's true. So that is true. Perhaps he harnesses the tardigrade and uses it to sort of spore <gasps> travel teleport thing <laughs> to the dark Marvel universe where Jason <laughs> Isaacs is Thanos. I don't know what I'm doing. And that was our Star Trek Discovery spoiler special. Oh my god. Yeah. Can't open wormholes everywhere. <laughs> that was our Friends spoiler special. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast. I really want to do a Friends spoiler special. We should do that. The one with all the spoilers. Anyway. <laughs> Back to Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, we've covered the timeline stuff. I think I've answered your questions. It was Nat's fault. Uh, How dare you? She, she can't be expected to keep hold of can, everything. Her best friend is under house arrest. You don't think she knows when they're out of house arrest? Come on. She probably knows when Hawkeye's under house arrest, but is she really that bothered about Scott Lang? And I just, also, would they a preparer. Would they make the detour from... They go to Scotland, then they go to uh, Avengers HQ. Yeah, which is and like then San Francisco yeah, is... It's a long I way mean, away. it's a long way away. Do you really even want to go and do that? And then go to Wakanda? What, what could he do? Stuff. Also, Stuff. she doesn't say he's all the way over in San Francisco, does she? She says, oh, he's under house arrest. Yeah, she doesn't even bother to check. You know why? She doesn't like him. You don't like him. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can't back that one up. <laughs> Look... <laughs> Uh, I, d- I don't know. I just think it's it's uncharacteristic. Okay, 
Let's talk about one of the, uh, the major plot developments in this, which is, of course, is that we go into the quantum realm uh, again, but this time we spend a little bit more time. Uh, did you want to spend more time in it than we do? Uh, was it trippy enough? And let's talk about Janet Van Dyne. Who thought mm. she was going to be a badden? You did, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really think so. But I did feel like I wanted more of her, maybe, from it. And I was surprised that it really took them as long as it did to get her out of the quantum realm. I thought there was going to be more sort of to that, in mm. a way. I was almost disappointed, I guess, her sort of implication, some of her comments about the quantum realm suggested almost a sort of society there or like a... You know, there are other beings, there is a sort of way of life there. And that just seemed weird to me. I would have preferred some kind of trippier conclusion, I suppose. But, you know, I, like any any excuse to see Michelle Pfeiffer on the big screen is a good excuse. So That seems fair. Uh, let's take some questions now. We've had some questions from listeners. Declan E. Williams, these are all from Twitter. Just watched Ant-Man and the Wasp midline showing I have a burning question and it's a technicality. How on earth do they use the toilet in Hank Pym's lab? It moves around so much so it can't be connected to the plumbing <laughs> and how does it have power? It can't be connected to the mains. That's a very That's good a question. That's a very, very valid point. Mm. So we're saying there's kind of tiny little bits of feces floating around <laughs> in that suitcase. No, I think we're, we're saying there's some kind of yeah, sewage tank system, right? Presumably. Like a septic tank. Yeah. 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 Maybe that. Well, pin particles. You just, every time you go to the toilet, you just you shrink your poo and you just keep it in a little... No. Little poo jar. jar. A little, little poo, poo jar. Why would you keep it in this scenario? <laughs> it's not don't connected answer, to, please it's don't not answer. connected to the plumbing. So okay. obviously you would have to keep it. I did have that thing. That I did have that question about more, not so much about the gigantic building that has lots of room for a septic tank that they put in the suitcase, but the or turn into a suitcase, but more about the house that they transfer to presumably Hawaii at the end, because that they just planning permission, planning permission, plumbing. I mean, come on, people. Am I They're the only squatters. one thinking about this? They're literally, squatters. literally squatters. <laughs> well, you know. Fertilization, I guess, of yeah. nearby plants. It's all, it's all fine. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit um, presumptuous of Hank, isn't it? There's an interesting thread runs through this movie and the, and the last movie as well. That you get the sense that Hank Pym was a total and utter dick, and I'd like to see that being explored a little bit more in Ant Man and the Wasp and Ant Man and the Wasp, which is what I presume the next one will be called. <laughs> you know, like the idea that maybe, maybe something has come back with Janet that maybe there, you know, there is a, something otherworldly about her and maybe the fact that Hank ain't as heroic as he seems that so would be you think it could be Ant-Man and the Wasp versus Ant-Man and the Wasp <gasps> holy shit Helen you've blown this thing wide open that would be absolutely amazing uh, but yeah he's very presumptuous now he just plonks his house down the beach Without so much as a, a buy or leave, well, or by law and leave. <laughs> Presumably, he's rich and has bought the land already. But you know, even so, it just I, do, I just I just was worried he hadn't thought through the plumbing and piping situation generally. Mm. How's he going to get back to the poop. broadband? <laughs> <laughs> just okay. I do like, uh, incidentally, the fact that and Hank and Scott still have an antagonistic relationship. That mm. Hank clearly thinks Scott Lang is an idiot, and he's not far <laughs> off. Well, that's true. I, I also just this is completely unrelated. I also really like the fact that he had built a giant office building with a retractable handle, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and that he kept his cars in a sort of like Hot Wheels box. Mm. I thought that was adorable. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. The movie just basically where says, does where does the handle go when the building's big? Don't you start. Don't you I didn't say a thing. I didn't say a thing. Oh, no. I just... I, you didn't a legitimate, say thing. It was a legitimate question based on, so you if know... So Hank, if Hank was struggling <laughs> to locate 
his device would well, allow him to, 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 to tow on, his then, building away, yeah, yeah. he would probably say something like, Where's the handle? He needs the axe. Oh, I don't know why he'd say that. <laughs> Help me find it. I need the handle. You think he'd say that? He might. He yeah. might say that. He might say that. I don't think he would. I think he would. I think he'd say those exact words. <laughs> Please make it stop. Uh, you were supposed to protect us. <laughs> you were supposed to protect Pim Laboratories. <laughs> I like the fact that uh, the film just says, yeah, in the last two years, they've been working on pin particles so much that they can shrink cars and grow cars uh, willy-nilly. Yeah. And all you have to do is be inside. You don't have to be wearing the suit or have the mask on or anything else. Yeah, that's an interesting stuff. one, isn't it? Like, because the suit is there to stop your, like, bits from <laughs> exploding. <laughs> exploding. <laughs> yeah. And yet, apparently, it's all that essential. No, yeah, they seem to have, you know, just gone, ah, fuck it. Yeah. Fuck it. We could have some comedic mileage out of a tiny Paul Rudd running around the school and running down that, that visual gag of him running down the steps. Yeah. Destroyed me every time I've, I've, yeah, seen, it. I've seen it twice. But. Uh, here's another question. This is from uh, at Rain Minded. Do you think Marvel earns its reputation as basically making a TV show with $150 million episodes at this point? Is there anything about Ant Man and the Wasp that feels like a movie? Well, apart from the fact that it, it is a movie. Uh, not that I didn't enjoy, but it struck me more than even Infinity War how TV the storytelling felt. That I think this is. I've heard this argument before, and I in think it sense? is not to put too fine a point on it. Bullshit. But in what sense? In because that it's it is long episodic, form storytelling. Long form storytelling. I think Marvel themselves would probably say novelistic, or if you want to use another comparison, like a comic book that is ongoing. <laughs> Uh, they're self-contained yeah. they're, they're self-contained and not in the way that episodes of CSI are self-contained mm. I mean yeah they're, they're films in their own right there's just a, an overarching super narrative yeah and you do have an 85 foot tall man in this movie as well as the tiny little yeah. men almost never see that in MasterChef no very very rarely mm. you know? only in the season finales <laughs> when Greg Wallace <laughs> rises up to the size of a building oh lovely lovely beef I don't says. understand what you're saying. It, no, but uh, three people will, so that's fine. But yes, I don't, I don't agree with this. I, I really don't. Uh, I think these movies are movies. Occasionally, they may take something. There's an idea of cold opens in these films, especially in the Ant-Man movies. You get the idea of, you know, we start in the, the first one starts in 1989 with a, you know, almost like a TV, but this pre-credit sequence. Mm. But I think that's it as far as, yeah, as far as that's concerned. Kitchen with an R asks... I absolutely loved every time I was about to zone out during another discussion of the quantum realm. Scott Lang was equally as confused. Smartest move in a film that had to introduce a lot of new and weird stuff. Yeah, I think it's always important to have somebody who's as clueless as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And uh, I noticed that they do have a scientific consultant who tries to make sure that all the science malarkey is accurate. But honestly, who gives a shit? <laughs> it's about people who can shrink and go into little tiny dimensions. A giant ants and a phasing ghost woman. Yeah. And-, and an ant that can play drums. I mean, that's not get too far off the path here. The this ant is in the bath was a high point. Sexy. Yeah. I mean, the sexiest moment in the MCU, I'd say. I um, would beg to differ, but... Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm intrigued to know which bit you think is the sexiest <laughs> moment in the MCU. That's a whole other conversation that we should have <laughs> off mic. Okay. Yeah, I also liked the moment when uh, Scott was possessed by Janet. Yes. Uh, that did, was you though? did you know? Did you know? Did you know? I thought it was fun. Like that, that whole zeroing in on her like she's somehow left part of her psyche in him. That I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, it is, but I just that but, just felt a bit shit, didn't it? Oh, you, you convinced me. 
at soundmerchant85 asks, given the tone of these films and the lack of a rogues gallery, don't you think the next instalment would be the perfect place to introduce Modoc into the MCU? No. Why not? It's rubbish. He's a giant head that sits in a floating chair. That's what I'm chair. saying. <laughs> Modoc is not someone we need to see. Any more than Mojo is. <laughs> All right, James has spoken definitively. Uh, Isaac In- Mar- infinitively. Oh, there we go. Uh, at Isaac Moreno asks, how do we feel about the quantum realm being treated as magic, specifically original wasps surviving all these years without food, water, access to hygiene products, oxygen? <laughs> uh, and where did she get the scavenger-style cape scarf thing? But more importantly, why did she need to put together a spear made out of her old wings? Oh, I didn't notice that. Uh, who is she fighting down there? Is this maybe set up for the third film? Uh, presumably yeah. one molecule of water vapour at that size would keep her going for decades. <laughs> so I imagine the water thing is sorted. Same, same. there's probably like half a Cheerio under a desk somewhere and that's enough food to keep her going. Because, you know, at yeah. that size, you're not going to need a lot. I, you wouldn't need a full Nando's, would you? I, I, no, you wouldn't need a full Nando's. <laughs> Just a cheeky I never Nando's do. would do. I, I one peri-peri chip and you're sorted. I think you could have... I think I, I actually kind of agree. This is kind of what I was getting at. I don't think you need any of that at the quantum realm level. And I don't think it's actually necessarily good to bring it in. Because it suggests this whole world yeah. at the quantum in a in a way that is less satisfyingly weird than the concept, I think, should be, ideally. Because the way she was dressed, you kind of felt like she'd spent decades fighting off, like, feral woodlights yeah. and stuff. And it like, just... I've seen that outfit on the cover of many a sci-fi novel, yeah. and I didn't really need to see it in, in a whole other dimension. But this is why I thought that she was going to come back as a badden because I thought the idea that she's been down there for 30 years, 31 years, yeah. I guess, by the time we start this movie. If you're on your own in that environment, you're going to go do Lally. And I thought that maybe she would come back and reveal herself to be... Do Lally! Possess it! But uh, no, but, but Peyton Reed has said that we should go back mm. and in the Quantum Realm scenes, we should mm-hmm. take a look and there's, there are things in the background that suggest that this is a fast and, and huge world teeming with possibilities and civilizations. Yeah. And so and I, I, I kind of get it, Microverse, Quantum Realm, it all makes sense. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's that, uh, that she went to basically the Quantum Realm version of Target and just got <laughs> lots, of, lots of stuff. Uh, as for the Quantum Realm being treated as magic... Hmm. I don't think it is. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right from the off, and particularly with Thor, has a science yeah. slash, and Doctor Strange, has Doctor a science Strange. slash magic interface. What seems like magic to some characters seems like science to us, yeah. and, and vice versa. But that's exactly kind of why I would have liked it to be a bit weirder. Like, if you read books that mess with dimensions, and the one that's coming to mind is the... Well, not the first three-body problem, but the sequels to the three-body problem, which is a fantastic sci-fi novel. I actually do sort of play with the idea of what it would be like in dimensions that have other dimensions, basically, fourth, fifth, sixth... Another dimension. dimension. Another dimension. Thank you. Another dimension. It'll Thank you, take Beastie your brain boys. to another dimension. So, another dimension. Pay close attention. <laughs> You're both terrible. Uh, yeah, so I just would have liked to have seen that kind of weirdness. Because this felt like the world they go to in Fantastic Four. The bad one. Uh, no, 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 we do not speak of that film. Well, uh, I just did. Uh, no. Um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And I feel that, I don't know. I thought that the Quantum Realm in the first movie was actually trippier than it was Yes, in this I agree. Movie. And I think the Quantum Realm in the first movie is more sort of Doctor strange And I was yes. kind of looking forward to getting back to that sort of weirdness. Because then you don't really have to explain time passing in the same way time can still have passed it can still have had an effect on her it can still have changed her but it doesn't have to have changed her in such sort of boring ways <laughs> <laughs> sorry 
sorry. <laughs> I like this film, damn you. And it's, I do like nothing it, but you can I, do just, this. I just... Uh, that was another... Lee Scott, like a love. Uh, can we mention talk about Le- Louise? Because I know that there was some debate in the office because we've talked about this. Yes. I think he's fantastic. He's one of my favourite MCU characters. Yes. And I loved his supersized... Uh, this is You said the movie has lots of callbacks to the first movie. Mm. I don't think it does, uh, but I, there is one definite callback to the first movie and that's a supersized Louise montage, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Except not as funny as the one in the first film. I would disagree with that. And you'd be wrong. But that's fine. <laughs> how, how does the debate work again? <laughs> <laughs> Everything you just said is rubbish. Um, oh, yes. That's how it works. <laughs> that is that's, pretty much how it works. But he does it very amusingly in the first one and he caps the first one on, off brilliantly. Like The ending of the first one with him doing that voiceover thing is excellent. Yes. Just in this, it felt like, A, we've done this before and B, it felt like this wasn't as good a version of him doing it as we'd seen before. So I felt a little bit let down. But I agree with you. I think Luis is a fantastic character. Mm-hmm. I would like him to have been better served in this. So there. At writer's block, did an alarm go off in your head when Michelle Pfeiffer mentioned evolving while she was in the quantum realm? Do you think they'll somehow tie in the eventual appearance of mutants with Janet's activities? Ooh. Hadn't thought of that? No, I hadn't thought of that at all. I mean, they can't yet. Not until no. the Fox acquisition goes through. Yeah. But, um... They could. I don't think that's what they were hinting at, though. I think that the Janet who's back is not the Janet who went in, and mm. I think that that yeah. will become... Evil Janet. That will become clear in Ant-Man uh, and uh, the Wasp. Versus, versus Ant-Man and the Wasp. And the Wasp, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I don't think it's evolving in, in a specifically X-Men direction. I actually would not be surprised if if x-men does lie in marvel's future it might be a post uh post infinity war thing there might be something to do with how they get everyone back after the snap i don't know no but i'm um, I'm interested to see what they do with janet although i'm disappointed that janet when they got to the quantum realm didn't just appear out of nowhere and go hi there in a kind of (laughs) good place styly yeah Yeah, exactly styly okay Yeah, okay. but I think it was. I think it was specifically to her. I do not think we were meant to think of it in a in a mutant sense. No, I don't think so either. But now I can't stop thinking about it. No, I it. want to. Uh, at Daniel underscore Peckett asks, will there be any point in having an Ant Man three with the Disney Fox deal happening? I have a feeling Ant Man three will be far down the line of cash cow future releases. <laughs> I think he may have a point. Yeah, it's possible. But then, I mean, we don't know. We don't know if the deal will go through. We don't know what effect that will have yeah. on the studio's plans. We don't know how far they have planned and yeah, how exactly. set in stone those plans and are. how they're going to integrate it and what they're going to do. Because they, presumably they've got to wrap up all the existing x many stuff that's in motion and then think about how they're going to reboot it all and integrate it. Mm. I, um, yeah. When's it Dark it makes out? an interesting, next, next February. possibly sensible passing of the torch if they're retiring all the old characters. That this is this would be an interesting new fork to explore, mm. to then sort of completely shift to mutant focus. I would love that. Mm. Love mm. a mutant. You do love a mutant. I do love a mutant. It has to be said. I think there will be an Ant-Man 3. Someone uh, wrote in to me today saying, what do you think about the idea that Peyton Reed would be the first director to direct all three? Obviously, given we'll have the James Gunn, Mm. who's going to do all three Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Um, It could be interesting, especially if, as I would like to happen, Janet goes nuts and starts, you know, trying to... Bad Janet. Bad Janet in the bad place. <laughs> and then Adam Scott turns up and starts eating his own toenails or whatever it is. Um, if, you ha- if you haven't watched The Good Place, do watch yes, The Good Place. Yes, do watch it. Yeah, you'll understand this. So good. Yeah, I, I, I'd be intrigued to see if they, they do make an Ant-Man 3. This one, these movies don't make as much mo- as much money 
as the other ones in the MCU. But I also get the feeling that they're not designed to, that that Marvel Studios and Disney, to maybe a lesser extent, are okay with not every film making a billion dollars. The pressure on this movie to make a billion dollars is not there, I don't think. No. I don't think it'll be the same with an Ant-Man 3. Should we get down that down that line? But, you know, hey-ho, we shall see. But also, he's a character that might work and the Wasp might work better, like the Hulk and like Black Widow coming into other people's movies. Like, look how great he is how in Civil War. How dare you about Black Widow? Come on. Come on, Chris. She's going to get her own movie now. Get is she, program. Helen? Well, let's hope. Yeah, she is. Uh, final question from at Sid Lichtenstein. What did you all think of Ghost and where do you think she will go from here? We haven't talked about her at all. We haven't, no. But this is why I was leaving yeah, to the okay, end. Well, so all, right, could, all right, I mean, that might speak volumes. I didn't think... She, I thought she was a little underwhelming. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't love her as a character. Um, I also think it was a mistake to show her helmetless in the promotion material. Because like, I like the idea of that like, as a faceless thing and then you take it off and then her backstory gradually unfolds. I think giving away kind of who she was ahead of time was mm. a mistake. It's a very classic comic book backstory, I thought. Mm. And, and also a very classic comic book sort of ending for that character where we see her only kind of partially re- redeemed. I mean, the post-credit sting suggests that she's a bit more redeemed than than that last glimpse of her. But it, mm. it was a sort of, it left on a little bit of a questioning note, which... She's got a lot of red in her ledger. She has a lot of red in her ledger, yeah. Um, to quote Black Widow, who we, as we know, is always right. <laughs> and could Stan has stole a movie. I mean, well, yeah. I don't know if Ghost could, but Black Widow could no, for Black sure. Widow, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, 100%. Yeah. I liked the character. I thought it was an interesting villain that the power set matched the you know, Scott and Hope very, mm. very nicely. I thought Hannah John Kamen was very, very good in the role. And, you know, because of the determination of Reed and Bruce Hard and the writers to keep this movie light and to have everyone have a happy ending, the character didn't go as dark as she could have gone. You know, I don't particularly like Darren Cross in the first movie. I think he's too one mm-hmm. note uh, as a bad guy. This one at least has some interesting wrinkles. And I think one of the more interesting wrinkles as well is her relationship with Bill Foster. Yeah. You know, I think pretty much everybody saw <laughs> the big reveal coming that he was involved with Ghost and he was behind yeah. everything. But he had altruistic reasons and he wasn't trying to destroy the world or take things over. And he was actually trying to save this girl who's in tremendous pain. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was an interesting wrinkle. And if there is an Ant-Man 3, I would be intrigued and happy to see more of these characters. Yeah, I was glad to see Bill Foster, actually, because the last time I saw him in a comic book, he was killed in Civil War. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, he's survived Civil War, so yes. yay, Bill Foster. Um, but second of all, you know, it'd be interesting if we can see more of him in the future. And perhaps Goliath in up. Indeed. Having a big old size competition with Scott Lang, perhaps. No more innuendos from you. There have been no innuendos from me in this podcast. It was That's a previous true, but podcast. anyone who listened to uh, this week as we record this, what week is this? What beginning of, is beginning this of August 2018, what that, that is podcast. This? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Many uh, innuendos. Uh, we all have to run now, off, yes. to the, off to the quantum realm. So that is it for our Ant-Man and the Wasp spoiler special. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, keep your ears peeled, of course, for future spoiler specials. The next one is absolutely guaranteed to be the second part of our epic Mission Impossible Fallout spoiler special with Christopher McQuarrie, uh, and that will be up at some point this week, probably Wednesday or Thursday, so keep appeal for that. And beyond that... A wasteland. A wasteland. I'm not entirely sure, actually, to be honest, what our next spotter special is going to be. It'll be fun finding out. Regular podcast is up every Friday, as you well know. Uh, Until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James. Bye. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. 
and it's goodbye for me. I'm off to the Quantum Realm to pick up some bargains before the Quantum Realm target shuts. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.